American Giant does things the hard way, but that's because it's the right way. By choosing to manufacture all of its clothes in the United States, American Giant supports local communities and produces the highest quality goods on the market. Ten years ago, they went against the grain and imagined making a hoodie of unbelievable quality locally, one that would hold up for years and get better with each wear. They did just that, and now they have a full range of durable essentials for men and women, including tees, premium sweaters, cozy sweats, and so much more. The best part? Everything is American-made to the highest standards, supporting hardworking communities, living wages, and safe working conditions. So you can buy your values and fill your closet with long-lasting clothes you can feel great about. Wear your values in the new year. Complete with durable essentials at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off with code NY23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Code NY23. Leftovers. Or. The DMV. Or. House cleaning. Or. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain. He's got it. Jerry West made it from the other side of the midcourt strike. To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win. Yes! LeBron! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes! It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to the season finale of season three of Duncan Dynasty. Alongside my co-host Corbin Ford, I am Garrett Bougay, and for this last episode of Season 3, we are going to be breaking down our Best of the Rest Bracket Challenge, our play-in Part 2. It's going to be five matchups. The first matchup is the 1997 Washington Bullets versus the 1976 Cleveland Cavaliers. Second matchup is the 2014 Brooklyn Nets versus the 2011 Memphis Grizzlies. The third matchup on our plate is the 2005 Indiana Pacers versus the 1995 Charlotte Hornets. The fourth matchup, the 1984 Detroit Pistons versus the 1988 Utah Jazz. And the final matchup that we will discuss in this episode is the 2009 Houston Rockets taking on the 2019 Philadelphia 76ers. If you missed uh, part one of the play-in, essentially uh, we've created a uh, a best-of-the-rest bracket, uh, a March Madness-style bracket that includes 74 teams, and uh, they're all teams that uh, failed to to reach the mountaintop and win an NBA championship. So uh, we we already eliminated uh, four teams in the first play-in, and uh, we've got one that's going to be decided uh, by a Twitter vote And then uh, we're going to uh, do five more matchups here, eliminate potentially five more teams. 
Uh, but uh, Corbin is going to defend one of the teams in each matchup. I'm going to defend the other. We're going to, uh, to, to break down the, the players, the coaching styles, the era, how these teams match up, and, and try to come to a conclusion as to who we think would win in a best-of-seven series. The, uh, the team with home court advantage uh, gets not only the four out of seven games on their home floor, but also four of seven in their particular era. So uh, without further ado, Corbin, uh, thanks for, for coming on as always. And, uh, you know, obviously with uh, with the NBA restart coming soon, Season 4 will be a lot of the uh, current NBA. But uh, for the finale here of Season 3, we're going to be talking some old school hoops. I'm sure you're excited about it. Oh, you know it, Gary. Like, this is, this is stuff that I'm pumped up for. As I always say, any excuse to watch old games with a semi-productive goal in mind, uh, just just hypes me up. I'll, I'll do it just to do it, but um, I'm I'm telling you to be like, no, this is research. Fun, you, you can't miss this. I'm I'm hyped to dive in and have some discussions. Hopefully, try to convince you one way or the other. But either way, just uh, just uh, have some good talks. All right, so let's uh, let's dig into this first matchup: the 1997 Washington Bullets versus the 1976 Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavs will have home court advantage which uh, makes a big difference in this series because, of course, in the mid-70s, there's no three-point line. So uh, some, some pretty drastic changes in the rules and, and how the game is played as well, depending on who will have home court. The, uh, the Cavs finished uh, that season with 49 wins. There were 18 teams in the league, and the Cavs finished third in offensive rating and fourth in defensive rating. They played a really slow style. They were actually 17th out of the 18 teams in pace, had a positive 2.5-point differential, which was the second-best in the league. They had uh, Their head coach was Bill Fitch, which I'm sure, Corbin, you know, uh, he later coached the 1981 NBA champion Boston Celtics and also that uh, 86 Rockets team with Hakeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson. Uh, but uh, this Cavs team incredibly balanced offensively. Seven guys averaging double figures. They uh, they have a formidable front court with uh, Jim Jones, who uh, who later played on a championship Lakers team in 1980, and also the uh, an aging but uh, Hall of Famer Nate Thurmond coming off the bench. This Cavs team pretty impressive, and that Bullets group a 44 win outfit. They were swept by the uh, the 1997 Chicago Bulls in a uh, in a somewhat close series. I believe games one and three were were somewhat close. They were 13th offensively, 14th on defense, with a positive 1.4 point differential. But uh, as far as the, uh, the 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 criteria that I uh, came up with to determine the seedings, which was regular season wins plus postseason wins plus point differential. This Bullets group was 74th out of the 74 teams in this tournament. Yeah, I mean, this team on paper seemed, um, on, on paper, I was like, okay, they're solid. Watching this, some of the games, they kind of fit the eye test, but there's, there's just a lot missing. Um, in, in one of the instances, you just said the three-point line is going to be a thing. I actually think that works perfectly for this Bullets team, only because their best three-point shooter percentage-wise was uh, Chris Webber. Um, at 39%, but on just over two a game. Um, they did have Tracy Murray, who was more of a gunner, and he was solid to at 35%. But after that, um, you're looking at Jaron Jackson and Chris Witten, the other bigs that could shoot the ball a little bit. And then, and then it gets ugly um, pretty fast as uh, Tim Legler, who, you know, we're forgotten by health, will be fine. But um, 
only shot 27%, and he's a normally uh, a very good three-point shooter, at least through the 90s. Um, but this team was anchored by their bigs, this 97 iteration. You had two members of the Fab Five, uh, both in their 23-year-old uh, season, in Chris Webber and Juwan uh, Howard. Both players averaged uh, just around 20 and 10. Um, Webber, 20 points, 10 rebounds, 4.5 assists, and Juwan Howard, 19 points, eight rebounds and just under four assists a game. So the offense kind of went through those guys. Uh, both had decent, well, really good uh, post play, uh, decent shooting uh, mid-range, and then Chris Webber was the guy who could really stretch to three um, and scored all three levels. Point guard Rod Strickland, who is age 30 season, but he was still very effective, 17 points, uh, four rebounds, just under nine assists a game. Really creative getting to the, to the rim. I, I, I know he's related in some way. I, I always forget to Kyrie. Um, I'm trying to think if it was a godfather or grant, uh, grants, I forget, but either way, like his finishing ability around the rim is, is crazy. Yeah. Um, his jump shot in mid range was solid, not a three point shooter, uh, really at all, but pretty good distributor. And, and he was a guy who really got the bullets into their offense. Cappuccini was a, a pretty good wing, solid, good shooter, iffy from three point range, but solid mid range shooter coming around screens and serviceable enough defense on, you know, you're better guards, you're Jordans and the others. I mean, you couldn't stop those guys, and I mean, the Woods just didn't. But he was a solid kind of, I don't want to say 3 and D wing, but uh, a solid, stout defender with some good shooting ability. And then George Marichon, who I hope I'm going correctly after watching, I don't know how many times, was just was huge. Like, when I say the guy was a giant, 7'7", seven seven, uh, 300 pounds uh, from Romania, he had like a, he was strong. He, he looked, his build wasn't, let's say I'm thinking of another, Seven foot five, seven foot six, skinny guy. Not, not like I'm a new bull or Sean Bradley. He he definitely didn't have like the frame of like a Yao Ming or something. But he was tall, great touch around the basket. Um, he averaged ten points and six rebounds a game on sixty percent shooting from the field. Like I said, really good finishing and just being that size was a decent turn around the rim and someone that the Wizards could also play through uh, in spurts. But that was really. They're solid five. And off the bench, you had productive vets. You had Harvey Grant, uh, the brother of Horace Grant, who, who swung between small forward and power forward. He played pretty well. Jerry Jackson, like I said, uh, three-point shooting specialist, and Chris Whitney and Tim Legler. And then you also had a young big in uh, Ben Wallace, who, you know, he didn't get a lot of playing time this particular season, but this was before he would come to fame with the Pistons of, of their uh, title run in 05 in contention for years after. So this is a solid team. They were 13th uh, in both offensive and defensive rating. Uh, they were 6th in pace. And, I mean, they were coached by Jim Lyman for the first half of the season and Bob Stack for one game upon Lyman's, Lyman's dismissal. And then Bernie Bickerstaff, who also coached some uh, really interesting and fun Seattle Super Teutonic teams from the late 80s, took over and brought the Bullets to the playoffs. So a really solid team, but yeah, they, they, they didn't really have the top-end talent. Chris Webber was their best guy. Jawan Howard uh, had potential back then, but was really what he was, solid. And the other guys, potential-wise, Cal Percini was who he was. Rod Strickland at 30 was who he was, and then that was really it for the Bullets. So, you know, I, I thought they were a lot more interesting than let on, but I can definitely see why. You look at the number test, they don't quite make it. You look at the eye test, they're solid, but, but not super great. And really, it's just on paper that you look at the numbers and go, oh, okay, like, eh, eh. <laughs> And that's kind of how they felt. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and the thing that's interesting, you know, in, in comparing these two teams is both kind of had a before and after picture 
that was pretty stark. You know, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the the, the 75-76 Cavs, actually started 6-11, and uh, but then made a trade for Nate Thurmond, and he really improved the bench for that team. And he not only was a bench presence, but also really good in the locker room, an incredible leader. Thurmond actually only played 114 games with the Cavs, and he actually has his jersey up in the rafters. So that shows you the kind of presence that that guy had for such a short period of time. But uh, the Cavs were 6-11 and prior to his acquisition. They went 43-22 and after, so we're a completely different team uh, and, and a really excellent team at that. The Bullets, on the other hand, you know, started out pretty poorly. They actually fired their head coach, Jim Lynham, about halfway through the season and finished strong under Bernie Bickersnap, as you mentioned, Corbin, uh, 22-13. and 13. So uh, both of these teams kind of, uh, you know, going into the postseason were playing their best basketball of the year. And uh, just, to, just to mention what the Cavs uh, went through in the postseason, they actually were able to beat a, uh, a Washington Bullets team in 76 that was led by the likes of Elvin Hayes and Wes Unseld uh, and, and uh, Dave Bing. They beat them in an incredibly fun, tight series. They, uh, they hit a, a game winner in Game 7 with about five seconds to go and then actually also won one of the, their four games in Game 5 on a buzzer beater by Jim Clemens grabbing the rebound and putting it back up as the, as the buzzer expired. But uh, a really fun series. And then in between round one and round two, the, the, right before the Eastern Conference Finals, Jim Jones, one of the Cavs' better players, breaks his foot in practice, lands on a teammate, and uh, that uh, really hurt the Cavs. They end up losing to the Boston Celtics, the eventual champion Celtics, in six games, but only lost that whole series by a combined total of, uh, of five points. So they, they are a team that, uh, you know, again, growing up in Ohio, hearing about uh, former Cavs team, everybody said that, you know, this team was, was destined for greatness and they were going to go all the way prior to that, uh, that Chones broken foot. Yeah, that does seem like something that would derail um, them immensely. Like you said, that being a key part of that, piece of, of that team and, and having the injury totally... It's unfortunate, especially for a Cavs team that, you know, you don't really hear a lot of, even despite, like you said, Nate Thurman's impact and others that made it such a soft squad. And uh, just, I guess, the complete opposite for the Bullets in the sense that, you know, they're 22 and 24 at midseason. Uh, they got rid of Lynham, um, and then they played one game under the assistant. And then once they hired Bernie Bickerstaff, uh, they finished the season winning 16 of their final 21 games, uh, including uh, beating the Cleveland Cavs on the last day of the regular season to capture that eighth seed. And <laughs> so, uh with that, you know, finishing, uh, ending an eight-year playoff drought was something that was crazy. You could say, you know, you already had the acquisition of Roger Clinton um, in the offseason and signing Tracy Murray um, as a free agent. But um, having that last run under Bernie Baker's staff was really what kind of saved that season because the Bullets, like I said, that was the first time they'd been, like I would mentioned earlier, earlier, that was the first time they'd been in the playoffs in eight years. So they seemed destined to kind of be back in the cellar of the East as they were. And then that continuity came together, um, a solid coach and bigger staff, and, and a great run, including a thrilling finish to kind of finish where they were. Yes, even though it was, you know, a, a pretty quick exit at the hands of the Bulls, just getting there and playing behind uh, Chris Weber, who had led the team in scoring. He was rebounding, led them block shots. He was a monster on all of that. And this was the last season. Just a little bit of piece of trivia here, Garrett. This is the last year that we called them the Washington Bullets, as they would be 
the Wizards after that and then not make the playoffs until like another eight years. So Yeah, uh, and uh, speaking to the differences in era, this is also the last season, the 1996-97 season, where the NBA had the shorter distance three-point line. So, uh, you know, you talk about the Cavs having to sort of, um, you know, in the games that they're playing – in Washington, with a three-point line, it's a little bit easier of a transition because it's 22 feet as opposed to the 23-9 that it has been for, for most of the time the three-point line has been around. Uh, and, and the Cavs had a couple of guys in the likes of uh, especially Dick Snyder. It was a very good outside shooter, uh, consistently shot in the mid-80s from the free-throw line. Uh, so, so he was a guy that I think could, could step out, hit threes. Same with Campy Russell. Another guy that uh, was long and, and really, uh, you know, had a high release, was really hard to block that shot. So he could get those shots off, and he had some pretty good range as well. You talk about Bingo Smith, Austin Carr. They had plenty of guys that I think would be capable of, of hitting some threes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the thing that really impressed me watching a little bit of that, uh, I, I watched a little bit of the, that Cavs Bullets series in 76. And, again, that Bullets team that they beat a couple of years later go on to to win the NBA championship, um, that uh, the the thing that was very impressive was the unselfish play by the Cavs. That they they uh, they, they passed the ball around. Nobody was kind of uh, too ball dominant, and uh, really they had uh, in any given game. You know, you might have one game one. You might have Austin Carr go for twenty. The next game, Campy Russell might score twenty. Then you've got Dick Snyder putting up 25. You've got Jim Jones, who who led the team in scoring at 15.8 points per game. So regardless of, you know, kind of how you defended them, they had an option, a guy that could that could go off if you, uh, you know, didn't give them your full attention. Yeah, and I, I want to say a lot of that also seems similar to the Bullets in terms of having uh, a semi-clear pecking order, pecking order, excuse me, Chris Webber leading the way, but had a lot of guys who could go off for moments and have more of a balanced roster. Uh, the danger in both teams, I feel, isn't even, I mean, their depth, but also their, their balance across the board. It reminds me of, we were talking in our last play-in kind of tournament discussion about the 2013 Denver Nuggets and the fact that, yeah, you have one or two guys who really lead the way, but the, the strength in both of them is that with this more egalitarian style, different players can stuff at different times, all have a skill set that work together. And I have to point out, I mean, if we're just comparing the two teams on names alone, Bingo Smith wins, you guys are in the playoffs uh, just because, like, what a name, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, he was uh, he was a, a decent all-around player as well. So, uh, yeah, the, the Cavs also repping those, the wine and gold uniforms that the uh, the, the current Cavs have, have, have uh, repped on on uh, retro evenings at the oh, what's the uh, i keep thinking of the the queue quick and loans arena but it's uh, oh at the no. at the rocket mortgage field house uh, <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know <laughs> i always forget the arena I, i'm pretty much trash at those so yeah, yeah but uh real fun team they uh again they they seem to be a, a true contender again competed against that that 76 celtics team um, and you know when you when you talk about the bullets, yeah, they, they got swept in the first round, but uh, you know that was a was a terrific Bulls team they lost to. My big my my big question mark though is you know it, it the the Cavs were were pretty elite on both ends of the floor even during the regular season, whereas this Washington Bullets team was was pretty uh, pretty much in the in the, the middle of the pack on on both ends of the floor. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, there's there's a strength for sure on on the Cavs that you, that you'd have to give 
some credit to, um, or some credence to. For the Bullets, I think that, yeah, you're right. They're solidly in the middle on both offense and defense, or just about. Um, but they, they held us probably won the playoffs. They did get swept, yes, but every game, the, 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 the worst game of the game that was decided on, by the most points was game one where they lost by 12 after that a five-point loss and then a one-point loss so they, they stayed in front despite you know the best player of our time Michael Jordan averaging 37 five and five for the series and yeah and he had fi- he had end, 55 in game two of that series I was trying to go past that Gary <laughs> I was really trying to power on through <laughs> I did my research you can't sneak anything by me darn darn but even then I, again I have to stress <laughs> I should have learned by now, but even then I have to stress that the strength of this team, you had all five players in that series average double figures throughout. No one with 20 points. The closest actually to scoring 20 points was Rod Strickland, who was really good at penetrating the lane, had a couple of nice jumpers over Jordan in, in that series. I like um, quick left-to-right crossover, right-to-left, and as Jordan was recovering, he was already in a stop-and-pop motion. It was really good to see that from Strickland. Um, but he averaged 19-6-8, Juwan Howard 18-6-1, and, and then Tracy Murray came in big with 18 points um, in five three-pointers over those three games. Uh, Chris Webber with 15-8-3, and, and then Calvert Cheney with 15-3-1. and one. So, uh, again, a lot of the, the strength of it was different players stepping up and all contributing. And, yeah, they, they didn't really have the greatest – I mean, they were pretty much average across the board. They, didn't, they had some good three-point shooters, but not a lot. They didn't have – uh, a, a horrible defense, but it wasn't a great one. Their offense could be clunky at times, but it wasn't terrible either. But again, I have to stress, I mean, knowing how to adapt to a pace um, as far as playing with the Bulls and, and, and kind of stressing, um, kind of trying to dictate pace there, uh, even not being able to stop Michael Jordan, since we're going to have to touch on that now, but, you know, at the same time, <laughs> being able to kind of get into their offense and, and get the ball spread and, and moving it around and playing to you know, the hot hand, a lot of what their offense was, was not inside out because their outside shooters weren't great shooters, but just creating space to play through certain players at times and continue to spread the rock around. And I think that that's a strength in and of itself, even if it's not one that shows up on the box score per se. Yeah, the, the big concern for me as far as the bullets is just the depth. You know, you talk about that, that three-game series against Chicago. You have essentially six guys playing uh, – you know, either half, at least half the game or more, and then you know everybody else on the bench. Harvey Grant played less, played nine point seven minutes a game. Chris Whitney six point seven. Tim Legler six point three. So they really were kind of a top heavy unit, and and that goes to show you why, as you mentioned, you've got five guys averaging fifteen points or more in that series because they're playing all the minutes. I mean, somebody's got to score the points. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you could have them playing not. Yeah, and uh, I also got to say, you know, yes, George Mirasan was, uh, you know, a, a very tall human being, but uh, that guy makes Boban Marjanovic look like the most athletic man on the planet. Man, see, again, I have these little notes down of stuff that I was hoping that you wouldn't mention. Um, <laughs> you already mentioned Jordan Mintz meeting us. That was my exact words. The second was, don't bring up George. <laughs>
again, offensively, I was impressed by his touch and some and uh, a little bit, but at the same time, you're right, just being a very tall human being uh, kind of helps with that. But yeah, defensively, you're you're not getting anything. He was um, definitely um, a weakness to any players with, with a moderate level of of athleticism. So that was an issue, and uh, yeah, overall, that'd be a struggle there. Also, I mean, the bench. The bench didn't get a lot of minutes. You already mentioned that. And mind you, I remember marveling at that when I was watching. Um, I watched a lot of the Bullets Bowl series, and I was like, wow, like, Chris Weber and Howard are getting a lot of run. But at the same time, both those guys were 23. Both those guys were productive. Uh, it wasn't like they had, they tired easily or had, like, a, a drastic lapse in play in terms of fatiguing them quickly. So I didn't see that that huge of an issue. But um, I think that's something that they would have over the Cavs or something that the Cavs more would struggle with is the athleticism and talent of the Bullets front line in Howard and, and, and Weber, particularly Weber, of course, who was just, I think he would be a monster across uh, several different areas, but with his length, his athleticism, his ability to shoot from range, his speed to get around players, um, his passing eye, rebounding from the offensive standpoint alone, Weber would be a handful. And Howard, although a little bit more limited than Weber um, in certain facets of the game, was still a very solid player, particularly when he was younger in his prime before he became more of a kind of jump-shooting big um, who was just offense only. Back then, you know, he did have um, a little bit of a passing eye, definitely still a solid rebounder, and those two worked in tandem really well, kind of picking up from where they were in Michigan um, on the Fab Five, and I think that the front line of those two particularly would create some issues for the Cavs. Interesting. Yeah, I, um, you know, speaking to the kind of the strength of this Cavs team, I really did think it was it was the front court. Uh, you know, <laughs> you uh, you talk about Jim Jones, fifteen point eight points, nine rebounds. Pretty, I think he's a pretty good athlete, and you know, he was also a guy that I think balanced out the other couple of bigs because Jones could step out and hit a fifteen to seventeen foot jumper as well. One of the best shooting bigs in the league at that time. Uh, and then you talk about. Uh, Jim Brewer averaged 11.5 points, 10.9 rebounds. Um, pretty, pretty uh, good mover as a as a big. He's about six six ten. Could uh, could move laterally pretty well. He there was a couple times in that uh, in that bullet series I watched from '76 that uh, you know he faced up and, and drove around and and was able to utilize his quickness to get to the hoop and, and draw fouls. And then you know you bring Nate Thurmond off the bench who's uh, you know, uh, arguably in terms of uh, all-time rankings, the best big in this series. Uh, you know, this is certainly after his prime. He's a little bit older here, but you know, yeah. per thir- per 36 minutes, Nate Thurman averaged 9.5 points, 10.9 rebounds, and 2.7 blocks. He just did a little bit of everything. All the little the little dirty work that you need to grab an offensive rebound, get a block shot, um, dive on a loose ball. Um, you know, and just being that communicator out there on the floor. So, so yeah, I, I really liked the, the front court for the Cavs. And, and yes, I, I, I do think that, that Howard and Weber give, give just about every team problems. But I don't think that's anything in, uh, you know, in particular that the, the Cavs team would, would struggle with more than, than your average team. Okay. I mean, all right, so would you consider the front court matchups between the two a wash then? Um, I, I mean, when you talk about <laughs> Camp, Campy Russell is playing a lot at the three, uh, and and I like him a lot. You know, if you're talking about okay, just just pick two of the three front court guys. Yeah, your your Weber and Howard are going to win out. But if you have to pick all three, 
Uh, I like Campy Russell a lot more than you know George Murison, even though they don't play the same position. But that's the other. That's the other, I suppose, in the front court. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think maybe maybe Washington has a slight edge there. But again, given the Cavs' depth, and and I also like the Cavs' backcourt a lot better than the than the uh, the Bullets, uh, the '97 Bullets team, because you know the Cavs have a couple of guys that they can throw at Strickland and in Foots Walker and Austin Carr, a couple of guys that were really good athletes. They were they were known for getting up and, and pressing full court, um, and and again, Dick Snyder, really good offensive uh, offensive player. And uh, Bingo Smith as well, so they've got a lot of uh, a lot of depth and, and talent, basically at every position. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, I would definitely take the Bullets front court, uh, particularly just those two, the forward tandem. Let's just pronounce it there, especially since Chris Webber played a lot of small forward. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll concede. Those. I'll concede the forward the forward play. Yeah, but if you throw okay. in the f- entire front court, it gets a little more sketchy. Yeah, if you throw in the exactly, especially since uh, I wasn't the hugest fan of Marishon. Uh, before I watched the series, watching him more in depth, I was uh, moderately intrigued. But again, it didn't really changed the kind of player that he was. Um, backward wise, I like the talent that you guys have. I think that they're a lot more uh, dispersed. Uh, each one has different strengths, and whether that's you know penetrating, shooting, and guys like Austin Carr, like you mentioned, um, guys like Bingo Smith, as far as a shooting stroke, and, and that's solid. But I, I don't know. I, I, I want to concede that to you, but at the same time, I do want to make a case for the fact that Strickland looks very, very solid. I get picking up full court. The dude was a maestro with the ball, penetrating pretty much at ease. Uh, he had, obviously, you know, some struggles with size, and I could see Nate Thurman or, or, or others giving him some issues. But at the same time, the dude was just a master. He's in the glass, um, getting to the lane. His, his ball handling ability was superb. And, you know, he wasn't the greatest three-point shooter, but he was really good mid-range, and since we're not even playing the three-point line, I don't think that's a weakness that can be uh, uh, exploited by the Cavs. And Calvertini was solid. I mean, I put him up there with some of your guys. I don't think any of that 76 Cavs roster, they were all solid players, but none of them was like superstars. Austin Carr is someone that comes to mind as someone who's a really solid player. I'm not saying Calvertini's on the level, but I don't think he's uh, glaringly worse when you line up compared to those guys in terms of being able to stick the outside shot, play passable defense, maybe handle the ball, uh, and a little bit of the pinch. Copper Chief, that wasn't really his game. He was more coming off the screens um, and spot-up shooting. But I think he fits over uh, just about as well. Um, and then when you come off the bench, you are bringing guys like Tim Legler and Chris Whitney, whose strength was their outside shooting, so space in the floor could be big. Again, they didn't get too many minutes, but they weren't horrible in that way. Although defensively, I'd probably struggle with both Whitney being undersized and Legler kind of lacking the foot speed and frame really to, to really stand a chance against some physical powerful bigs, but I mean powerful guards, but since the Cavs don't really have a whole lot of that, if they have guys who can play that way, I don't see them also being played off the floor either. Well, but you got to factor in that in Cleveland, their floor spacing isn't nearly as valuable without the three-point line. And that is true. So when I look at that, I still... Uh, I struggle to still think that it would be a glaring mismatch. I think it'd be a lot closer than maybe than maybe it, it looks on paper. Um, just because, I, although I do think Cleveland has uh, some talented depth, I don't think Washington's is that bad. But at the same time, if I had to pick a weakness, it, it would be their guard player, their shooting guard position for sure. Like I said, they were still working out the kinks. Um, they didn't have a 33 or 34-year-old uh, Mitch Richmond just yet. So a lot of it was still... Um, Calvert at the two with Chris Weber playing the three. 
um, Howard at the four and Marichal at the five. Uh, and, uh, you know, Chris Webber can play that in spots, but that definitely wasn't his ideal position. So I'm kind of talking myself out of it. I, I will concede the guard matchup to you, but I don't think it's as big a difference as it may look at first glance. I, I think we've we've probably broken this down enough to uh, kind of get down to, unless there was there anything else you kind of wanted to, to discuss that, that intrigued you about this matchup before we, we uh, break down who we think will win it? Um, I think Bernie Bickerstaff was a solid coach. Um, am I going to say he's uh, Bill Fish level? Uh, I, I can't. But <laughs> <laughs> I do think he was good with adjustments, and that hot start that the Bullets went and sustained after him, I think, was in large part to some great coaching by Bickerstaff on the fly. So, I mean, in a head-to-head matchup, I, you know what? I feel like that's a wash. I shouldn't have brought it up. No, we're good. <laughs> I yeah. took two different teams in the finals. Um, he had a, a very uh, abrasive style, it seemed, at times, but it was a successful one. So uh, I'm, I'm not really going to bring it up too much. <laughs> yeah, really, to me, like, uh, you know, as far as an argument for the Bullets, it really is just, as you said, kind of the on-paper argument of, Weber, Weber, Howard, and, and Strickland are good, which is true. Uh, but uh, beyond that, there's 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 not a lot to, to like in terms of the not only the record but the the uh, the point differential, the the offensive and defensive rating. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, the, there is something to be be said that you know the the team was playing better towards the end of the season, but the, the seventy six Cavs were too. So I'm going to go with uh, Cavs and five. Uh, I'm going to say, I mean, I, I definitely got to concede to the Cavs as much as I wouldn't like to, but the Bullets got swept by the Bulls in a, a sweep, yes, but a close one, and as much as the 76 Cavs are cool, they are not the 97 Bulls. <laughs> so, I'm going to give the Bullets two games. Okay. I'm going to give them two games. I'm going to say Cavs in six. Um, as much as they, I mean, it's a different time and everything, but again, you're playing against Michael Jordan. I'm not seeing the fear of uh, Campy Russell or Bingo Smith in there. So they might go down, but um, I think that they'll win enough to at least keep things somewhat interesting. Cavs and six. All right, good. So my uh, my dad will continue to talk to me now that uh, we have, uh, I've convinced you that the, the 76 Cavs will advance. Uh, I, I would need another team to make a better case to get those Cavs off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he still he still talks about the the miracle and Richfield team, and, and he actually went to a few of the games. So uh, um, he was uh, when I told him uh, that I was going to be talking about them, he was uh, he was uh, he was making sure I knew all the details. But let's move on to the next matchup, and that is the 2014 Brooklyn Nets versus the 2011 Memphis Grizzlies. Corbin is going to be defending the Nets. I am going to be defending the Grit and Grind Grizz. And uh, the Grizzlies get home court advantage in large part because they, they went 46-36 and 36 in the regular season, had a positive 2.5 net rating. They were 16th in offense, 9th in defense, and they actually upset, as the 8th seed, upset the number 1 seed San Antonio Spurs in 6 games before losing in a brutally tight series to the Oklahoma City Thunder in seven, whereas the Nets uh, finished 44 and 38. Actually, had uh, was was one of uh, I believe only two teams out of the 74 that that made this tournament that had a negative regular season net rating. They had a negative one net rating, 
uh, but uh, did defeat the <laughs> did defeat the Toronto Raptors in seven ball games prior to losing to the uh, Miami Heat. Uh, the LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh led Miami Heat in five. But uh, one thing I think that uh, you know, in, in particular in this tournament, that uh, that gives the Nets a bit of a boost is yeah. that because all the teams are healthy, Brooke Lopez is going to be available. Yeah, and, and that was huge. Um, he's only able to suit for 17 games uh, that season due to a broken foot that he had suffered uh, that November. He attempted to play through it for a couple weeks, but in December he was diagnosed with a fractured fifth uh, metatarsal, that same foot that he had originally fractured a couple years back in 2011. So that was a big loss for the Nets who on paper uh, again, I feel like I, I picked all the on-paper teams when we talked about this, but <laughs> on paper, this Brooklyn Nets team was, was pretty solid. Um, I guess I'm just going to kind of run into it. Jody had an all-star trio of guys in Darren Williams, Joe Johnson, and Brooke Lopez, and then um, they swung for the fences on a deal that pried uh, Paul Pierce and Cameron Garnett away from Boston, along with uh, Jason Terry, um, and that cost them some depth in Gerald Wallace, who just frankly lost all his fastball and was out the league in a year and a half from that point. Chris Humphreys, Marshawn Brooks, Keith Bogans, uh, Chris Joseph, and then a bunch of draft picks in 2014, 2016, 2018, which absolutely had no bearing on Brooklyn's uh, future, I might add. Okay, like that was a perfectly fine trade with no negative ramifications. Just want to point that out. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, and, and, and I, I also want to uh, to make it clear to the audience listening in that uh, – that I let Corbin pick what teams he wanted to represent in this. So uh, for all of you thinking, wow, Garrett's giving Corbin all the, the worst teams and, and uh, making it easier on himself, I let Corbin choose. So I just wanted to uh, let the people know about that. I love a challenge where I sometimes uh, have moments of foolhardiness. <laughs> yeah. Um, one, thing, uh, one thing I also want to clarify is that Brooke Lopez was a completely different player at this point. Not only was he not a dominant defender like he has been with Milwaukee, but he also wasn't the three-point firing away sort of specialist. He was more of the post-play dominant guy on the block type of player at, at that time. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely a low post monster. Um, was not a three-point guy at all. And you're right, he didn't even t- attempt to rework his game for another two seasons as far as stretching out to three. But he was a very solid mid-range shooter, um, and a really good guy to, to dump the ball into the post at a time when, you know, the game wasn't as totally different as it is now. And, and that was a lot more acceptable kind of playing through him. So that that was one thing for sure. Um, making those trades for a uh, Paul Pierce and Kevin Arnett was, you know, the thought was that you would have video game level talent. I was so high on this team. Um, I remember specifically where I was during each, um, during each Brooklyn-Miami Heat matchup. And mind you, uh, Brooklyn won all four games that year against Miami. Yeah. Um, they would go on to lose in the, in the semifinals in five. Or, yeah, I said right. Semifinals in, in five, which was kind of disappointing. But I remember being so hyped about this team and waiting for them to come together. But it didn't start off great. Um, for one, uh, they, they had a horrible start. Um, in their first 31 games, they had won just 10. Um, that was pretty rough. Their defense was was just a, just horrible. There's, there's no other way to say it. It was horrible. Um, energy wasn't the best, and you could tell that a lot of the new pieces that came in um, had that time to gel and acclimate. Uh, another thing also was that, and I don't want to put too much negative on, on the team I'm trying to defend here, but <laughs> Darren Williams wasn't the same. I think this was like the beginning of the drop-off for him. He became a, a solid guard for another two seasons after that. You know, We all know how his career kind of ended as far as being 
by, I'll play a couple of uh, DC News of the Mavericks, and then um, one with the Cavs, and then that being it. So, I mean, crazy to think that, you know, he had like four more years after this um, in his prime, but he was another guy there. Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. Um, again, this was what kind of let them down, but it should have been, wasn't really a surprise. Kevin Garnett, 37 at the time, Paul Pierce, 35, 36. Um, they still had the fire and the veteran leadership, but that playing production was wasn't even their prime Boston days in which they were already in their third, you know, mid thirties or early thirties, much less that last couple of years they had where they um, led a Celtics team that was kind of, you know, past as uh, past as prime and still effective. But I will say, Joe Johnson, I felt was just great. He led the team um, with just under sixteen points a game. Uh, made the All Star team that year. Uh, had great clutch performances. Iso Joe was the guy who really led the way. And I think the loss of Lopez was it was it was really a negative because of how important he was to this team. But it made Coach Jason Kidd at the time go play small ball, which put Paul Pierce at power forward through most of it. And with that small ball um, play, the Nets were able to play a completely different brand of basketball once the New Year hit. And from January through the end of the season, um, Brooklyn, after that horrific start, went right back into the mix in the Eastern Conference, finishing the season 34-17. and 17. And that rebound helped them finish the season above 500 and kind of claw them back into the fifth seed. So high expectations, they didn't quite all go through, but I think that adjusting, finally getting the players in the same rhythm, um, using some new, some, some, some smaller lines that kind of helmed with, with uh, a still effective Paul Pierce to power forward, and then really embracing the small ball and three-point shooting lineups that they were able to pull out really helped Brooklyn to contend. So again, this was a team that was a lot stronger on paper than in actuality, but even in actuality, they weren't a horrible team. Yeah, I mean, they remind me, and, and this is going to um, cause you some some pain, no, Corbin, remind me, they remind me of the, the 2013 Lakers in a way. <laughs> Uh, you know, you've got the you've got these high profile names with Nash, Kobe, Dwight, and and Powell, uh, but but I think what people didn't realize is is one the the age. Of course, Kobe Bryant was was on the decline. Steve Nash, in large part due to injuries, was uh, you know had already probably had his his final great season in the previous year. Uh, so. So and you know Pau Pau Gasol wasn't uh, wasn't nearly the same player as he was even just a, a couple of years earlier when the Lakers won in 2010. Uh, so and you look at this this uh, 2014 Nets team, you know the on paper with the Darren Williams, Joe Johnson, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, and Lopez. People were were so excited about that, but yeah, Darren Williams's descent was a lot quicker than than people anticipated. You know he was an All NBA guard just probably three or four seasons prior to this, but he had he had fallen off a cliff. Uh, and and yeah, Paul Pierce wasn't the same player, and and Kevin Garnett. Uh, the the thing that was interesting to me about him was, you know, he had this this intensity that he played with, and he he couldn't not play with that intensity, which essentially made it that because he was playing as hard as he possibly could every second he was on the floor, he couldn't play more than twenty minutes. <laughs> I mean, you're right. I mean, defensively, he anchored that team. Um... You said it as far as not bringing the, the requisite um, or not bringing enough of that time because he played himself max ammo, you know, maximum effort all the time. And at yeah. 37, um, you know, with, with at that point, what, 14 years under your belt, 15 year NBA seasons under your belt, 
that that was a lot for a team that didn't really have a lot of raw raw guys on that roster. Uh, Paul Pearson and Garnett immediately brought that. Joe Johnson, you know, cool, smooth, iso, like all those uh, descriptions aren't you know loud, boisterous, expressive. Darren Williams is more aloof than anything. Brooke Lopez is a quiet guy. Um, you know, he he could talk, but he definitely wasn't even around the team in that way at that point. And then you had, um, and this is what I think is a strength. You had a nice, solid, um, you had a nice, solid group off the bench. Sean Livingston, um, this is his first year really coming back. He would, of course, shine as part of a, a bench group for, you know, multiple championships with the Golden State Warriors. Marcus Thornton was a gunner, but this was one of his more effective seasons at that role. Al- Allen Anderson was a solid swingman. Andre Blatch could give you some uh, great uh, post-play shooting and stretches for a big man who would constantly look for his own shot. He was good there. Mitsa Toledovic was a very solid three-point shooter. Um, shot just under five threes a night um, on just under 40% from three. Andre Karolinko was still bringing that Swiss Army knife, kind of a little bit of everything. Um, just emphasis on a little bit in this season. <laughs> and then Mason Pumley with a solid big who was really good in pick-and-roll action. Um, and Jason Terry, I mean, he didn't do super great, but he was another three-point shooter as well. So the bench was a little more balanced, um, and they all had just under, just around, just under 20 minutes a night, um, going to like their 12th man, from Joe Johnson all the way to Plum Plumley. So th- they, there was definitely some, um, there was definitely some strength in numbers in, in a certain kind of way with this team. And, I think that, that that's something that I definitely will be uh, using in this strategy here in the sense that the, that that team played well. And if you had those games like you did with the game three against the Miami Heat in the semifinals where they hit 15 threes because all those guys could really shoot, I think that's enough variance to turn the tide. But as we also saw in that first round against the Toronto Raptors that same season, they also thrived in a, a really gritty defensive battle where, you know, they're grinding out possessions and eking out offense where they can get it with guys who can still get off their own shot uh, pretty effectively in a Joe Johnson, as we mentioned, that 29-year-old Darren Williams. Yeah, speaking of uh, speaking of Andre Blatch, the uh, the low light of the uh, the uh, the NBA postponement on Twitter, or maybe the highlight, depending on how you look at it, was uh, I, I saw a tweet of uh, a highlight reel of Andre Blatch saying, prime Andre Blatch was a problem. Uh, you know, as soon as as soon as I saw that, I said, you know, people have uh, have gone too long without basketball. In their hands. Yeah. Well, I was watching Tyrus Thomas, so trust me, I, I know a thing or two about going down too deep a wormhole there on that. I was like, wow, you sneaky underrated. <laughs> but yeah, the um, I, I'm glad you brought up the stat. I, that was one I I didn't catch was that they they finished 34 and 17 down the stretch. Um, but you know, I was I was trying to look for some lineups that, that worked and, and maybe some some stats that would 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 provide some positives for that team. You know, but even with Lopez in his 17 games, they went seven and ten. Uh, in the in the 54 games that Kevin Garnett played, they went 27 and 27. So I don't even really think that that injuries really uh, you know derailed this team. In fact, as you stated. Perhaps the Lopez injury and them finally figuring out a, a proper rotation going small may have benefited them. So it kind of goes back, uh, you know, when, when we were doing our, our play in part one, when I asked you as the 1999 New York Knicks, were they better with or without Ewing? The question then becomes, were the, uh, the 2014 Brooklyn Nets better with, uh, without Lopez? 
I mean, it's weird. I, I, I feel like I have to plead the fifth on this because if I go one way, I can't use this excuse in my defense. So, <laughs> um, it's odd. I think I'm going to go with yes. I think having Brook Lopez, especially in a series against the Miami Heat, who, didn't, who played small ball a lot, um, didn't really have a big that could stay in front of Lopez, ideally, would have been... Um, I mean, playing without him for that would have been a weakness because going small kind of plays in the Miami Heat's hands in that season. And um, going into your team, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this up. I'm bringing the Miami Heat only, you understand, in this historic context concerning this team. If they had had um, Brooke Lopez, I think they could have used that to their advantage against a Miami Heat team that played small ball and didn't really have a great big man to stay in front of Lopez. Now, by playing small, the Miami Heat were just able to do it better. And yeah. that was where, you know, the, the Nets, quite frankly, met their end in terms of that iteration. However, playing small allowed them to kind of flex more or get more three-point shooting lineups on the floor. Um, it allowed them to open the floor more. Paul Pierce was still pretty solid. You could play Kevin Garnett at center, um, which happened a lot of the times in between minutes he was out. And then get guys like Toledovich um, and Karolinko in, um, guys who could move a little better. Um, could space the floor out some, um, not, not really Karolinko, although he was streaky for his career. And I think that that helped the Nets more. Um, although, again, it wasn't like their small, lengthy lineups led to necessarily a great defense or anything, but allowed them to play a style that was more suitable for them. So, in, in, in general, yes, I'm going to say so. For that season, I don't think so. It worked enough, but I think that it was a great change of pace. It wasn't their ideal lineup, and just like that season, it didn't really go as planned um, in terms of a lot of it being thrown together on the fly, but I think that that would have been a great second look for Brooklyn to have at their disposal than their one style to go to, even if it was moderately successful. Yeah, uh, and, and speaking of small lineups versus big lineups, we, we've talked this whole time about the Nets. Let's get into the Grizzlies a little bit. You know, this team, again, the grit and grind group, that uh, this was kind of the, the first year that it, it came to be. And uh, they're playing with Mark Gasol, a young Mark Gasol, uh, really good, uh, really good defensive player. So speaking to guys that could could deal with Lopez, uh, you know, there's there's not too many in the history of the NBA that can can deal with a post threat better than Mark Gasol. Uh, you've got uh, Zach Randolph, who is smack dab in his prime. He was really good in that postseason. A guy that had a silky smooth mid-range jumper, but also really good at, at drawing fouls and, and getting on the offensive glass. Uh, they've got a uh, you know an emerging Mike Conley as a, a solid pick and roll point guard, and of course you've got the the terrific defense of Tony Allen. And in particular in this matchup, I love being able to throw Allen at the likes of Joe Johnson and Paul Pierce. Yeah, I figured you were gonna say that. Mind you, he was a very good um, defender, uh, especially back then when he was more in his prime as far as uh, uh, the grit and grind style, the grit and grind defense. So that was definitely something to, to look at um, and something I considered. I like the fact that Mike Connolly was still stout defensively and you are playing against a Darren Williams who doesn't quite have what you know he'd had going up to that year um, with Utah and you know previous season with New Jersey. But he was still very solid. Um, but 15-6, 36% from three, 45%, um, uh, 50% from two. Like, he was still a solid player. I think that that would have been an interesting matchup to go to. Um, I think defensively, you put Mark Gasol, if you, 
I feel like, okay, matchup-wise, Tony Allen, to me, would probably go on Joe Johnson. You could swing Tony Allen in theory between Joe Johnson and Paul Pierce, but there's only one Joe Johnson to go around. And if you put, um, or there's only one, um, there's only one um, Joe Johnson to go around. Tony Allen. There's only one Tony Allen. You can put Tony Allen on both of them. There's only one Tony Allen to go around. Now, if you go and say, fine, I'm the better of our two defensive bigs, Zach Randolph was, was, was solid um, on offense and moved his feet on defense, but, I mean, that was never his. He fit in that in that scheme. I don't know if individually he was a solid defender. No. Um, especially <laughs> since he couldn't jump over a phone book or, or even a, a cookbook or, or a piece of paper. So, you know, we can go down and down the list. I think that if you line him up with Paul Pierce, Paul Pierce takes the advantage there, especially being able to shoot, still has some mobility off the bounce. That wasn't really Paul Pierce's game. Um, as he got older, but this was, I think, his last season. I don't know. He had a great season in Washington, too, a bounce-back season. So these are his last few seasons of being um, somewhat available to shoot, kind of score all three levels, albeit at a smaller uh, at, a, at a smaller rate than he was in his prime. I still give the advantage to him. If you put him on Gasol, I still think that Pierce has enough quickness and shooting ability to put Gasol out farther than he wanted to be, and so I think there's an advantage there. Um, as far as... Kevin Garnett, uh, I don't know. His offensive game at that point was pretty much done. Um, he could hit a mid-range jumper. He could finish around the basket. But even more so, he wasn't even looking to shoot that much at that point. Only six attempts a night. Um, uh, his value was more on the defensive end and communication. He's there. I think that ideally you would put Zach Randolph on Garnett um, as, as trying to hide him, if you will. Um, yeah. And I don't know whether or not Garnett's going to take advantage of that because, like I said, it just seemed like he, he was still aggressive, but offensively he just wasn't. It wasn't that, that was after that he was just kind of more into a defensive minded type of situation. Um, he was shooting a shot if it was there, but that was really it. And that, that, that's how I look at it up the first five. A small forward is interesting because, again, we're, we're kind of leaning into our bench once you put out uh, Joe Johnson, Derrick Williams, Paul Pierce playing more of the four. You kind of have Alan Anderson at the three, um, and then you could get uh, Toledovich up there and Karolinko for different looks. But Anderson was a solid kind of, I don't even want to say three and D-wing, but he was a solid enough three-point shooter, 33% for the year, and he played defense adequately. So I, I really look at that as a watch with whichever uh, swing man the Grizzlies are going to have out there. But I think if we look at the kind of checkered up and down cross-matching that you're going to have in terms of the starting five, I think the strength for Brooklyn is off the bench, where you can play more through guys like Toledovich who can get hot in a hurry. Um, guys like Mason Plumlee who could put some more gravity to the rim, and, and and shooters like maybe a Jason Terry as well. I think that's where you you get an edge for Brooklyn in conjunction with some of the effective play of a Joe Johnson, of of a, a Paul Pierce, and then we're just hoping for the best from Darren Williams who was kind of hot and cold all season. So I'll speak first to your comments about you know the the matchups and mm-hmm. and and you know if, if if you're going small with Pierce at the four, you know what I'm doing offensively is I'm feeding Zach Randolph the basketball and pounding Paul Pierce under the rim. Uh, if if uh, if, uh, if if you go with a traditional lineup with Kevin Garnett at the four and Lopez at the five or Plumlee at the five. Then I think the matchups work perfectly because I've got Marcus Saul for uh, I've got Marcus Saul for Lopez. I've got Zach Randolph on one of your uh, least effective offensive players, at least dangerous at that point, Kevin Garnett. Uh, then you put Sam Young, who is a solid defensive player, on the likes of Paul Pierce. You've got Tony Allen 
on uh, on Joe Johnson and Mike Conley on Darren Williams. So, uh, you know, defensively, if both teams go big, I love uh, the matchups for the Grizz. And then if you go small, yeah, you might be able to score a little bit more. But then my offense all of a sudden, the Grizzlies' offense all of a sudden, kicks into another gear because there's no way Paul Pierce is handling Zebo. That's true, but I, I think that works conversely. Like, uh, you, you, it's like you're going to either bleed points and, and hope that, okay, the Nets don't send double teams to try to limit uh, Zebo's effectiveness because now the Grizzlies had some semblance of an inside-outside game, but that wasn't, let's just say that there was a reason that they kind of sputtered at times. And their outside shooting was forever weakness for most of those years. And, yeah, it would be an easy advantage for Zebo versus Paul Pierce. But on the other end, I think the Nets would take that moment if they could play him off the floor um, by spacing him out just – to, to high, I don't know where, and making plays within that space that Zebo can't count. You're putting a lot of stress on a Marc Gasol, a lot of stress on a Mike Conley to make up for gaps. And if we are going big, I, I, I would concede that to you, except, again, I concede that because I don't think Paul Pierce, at that point, and watching some game, he, he definitely had lost a step from prime Brooklyn, um, from prime Boston, or even 2012 Boston days. So you can't keep going down the well to him again and again, but I would give him the advantage over Sam Young, who was was okay, but I mean, I mean, he was young, he he was you know? okay because he wasn't a very good offensive player, but I think he was an above average defensive guy. Uh, okay, you give him above average defensive guy, but you give him against a guy who has lost a step, but is still Paul Pierce and not the Clippers Paul Pierce. I think I give the edge to Paul Pierce there. I mean, he's still like I said, he's thirty five at this point. He's still not. You know, the Pierce of old, but the dude was still a very effective player. And yeah, if you give it to a guy like Sam Young, who would stay in front of him, most assuredly, but I don't think he's stopping Paul Pierce from getting it, especially, you know, when you have the likes of Ron and others who were on Paul, and Paul was still able to get his looks and get his shots. You know, it wasn't like he had completely lost his fastball back then. Um, so, I mean, I guess at best I would put that as a watch, but I definitely wouldn't give advantage to Sam Young. I just, I'm sorry, maybe I don't see it in me to do that, but um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have that there. But, um, well, but before let hold it, hold up, hold uh, hold that thought because I, I still haven't. You know, you've you've brought up the strength of the Nets bench, and I wanted to go into the the Grizzlies bench a little bit. You know, they had Shane Battier coming off the bench. You know, he's another guy that I think is a solid option to put on the likes of a Paul Pierce. Uh, you've got OJ Mayo who provides that shooting, that scoring option. Grievous Vasquez, an up and coming solid backup guard that provides great size as well. Uh, and then you've got Daryl Arthur, who is a, a, a mid-range sniper as a, as a big man. So, you know, you talk about, yeah, I, I agree with you that that Nets bench was good, but but I like the Grizzlies bench as well. The, the Grizzlies bench was, yeah. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't even remembered the Gravis Vasquez. Like, those guys were solid. I, I like a Shane Batty as another look. Yes, most definitely. But, I mean, we had Shane Batty in the matchup against Brooklyn, and, you know, I was, that, that worked out. No, it didn't work out okay, but it, it wasn't enough to deter me from looking, um, uh, let's just say, negatively upon uh, Paul, upon Paul Pierce and them, as Paul Pierce did average uh, uh, four, well, 14 points a game, 14-4 and, and two. was a super great. Uh, okay, you know what? Uh, <laughs> I'm looking at it now, and I'm forgetting that he was, I'm saying 34-35, Paul was 36. But, yes. I mean, 46% from the field, 40 from three wasn't horrible. I watched two of the games, and I thought that he was okay in spots. Again, a lot of the play was going through uh, Joe Johnson, who I think we haven't talked about enough in terms of being very, very effective. And, yes, you have guys you can swing down to, Tony Allen um, being a great defender, but it definitely would be um, some work for Allen because Joe Johnson 
um, playing the way he did, being able to score at all three levels, being able to initiate offense, um, having the size and frame to punish people down low. I think that he has some um, interesting uh, matchups that would go a little more favorably on his side, using his uh, size and frame to take Tony Allen um, into the basket, maybe get him in some foul trouble. And once you do that, yeah, you can slide Shane Battier over some others. But again, I mean, Shane Battier had his run on Joe Johnson in this series already, so there's some context there. Um, maybe being a little bit, what, two years younger, being a difference, three years younger being a difference, but Joe Johnson being someone who could swing a series and, and even did so a, a couple of years later um, for the Clippers against the Jazz. But a little bit more context needed for that, but the point I'm trying to get at is that Joe Johnson, uh, Joe Johnson was a problem, to quote many that were, many uh, stuff that was said uh, over the over this alone in the NBA. And I think that he would be someone that in addition to Pierce, if we're talking about Pierce as our main guy, then yeah, that, then then you know Brooklyn is is kind of out of it. But alongside someone who was just cooking all year and was just a very very good offensive player, I, I think that at least the Grizzlies have some challenges there trying to defend him, even with an all world defender in Tony Allen, who was was very good. But just, I just want to give some love to Joe Johnson there. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, Tony Allen was was second team all defense in that 2010-11 season, um, and and you know they they call him ISO Joe for a reason. Uh, so so he 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 does like the isolation, and you know there, there's not too many guys I would prefer to have on him in that situation. And and I think Tony Allen also was was pretty good in terms of if in the event Joe Johnson's coming off a screen, he's really good at uh, navigating those and getting around it and getting his hands on the ball. But then also I think what made that Grizzlies defense really good, uh, and especially when they when they got to the postseason, was you know you you talk about. Uh, you know, yeah, Zebo isn't the greatest defender, but he's big. He's a, he's a good defensive rebounder. He's got size, and and Gasol with that intelligence, that rim protection. You've got a couple of guys that you're driving. Even if you get past a uh, Tony Allen, you've got a, a a couple of trees there around the basket to 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 try to stop you. Uh, but but also, yeah, just the with with Conley, with Tony Allen, with with Sam Young, with Shane Battier, the and Grievous Vasquez. They were very good just in terms of preventing that initial penetration. Um, so, so yeah, it, it would be interesting. Yeah, if, if you go small with Pierce at the four, sure. Like, uh, Zach Randolph is going to struggle a little bit. But, uh, again, this is Randolph smack dab in his prime, averaged over, you know, 20 points a game that season and, and in the playoffs. Uh, he was, uh, you know, averaged over eight free throw attempts as well. You know, if, you, if you're putting Paul Pierce on Zach Randolph for any extended period of time, I think Zebo's getting him in foul trouble. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get where you're coming from. I, I can kind of form an agreement there with you. Um, at the same time, I, I feel pretty... Uh, it's weird. It's weird. Because I, I just don't feel as compelled between the Grizzlies having offensive lulls. I can see them giving up a lot of three-pointers. And uh, even if your best defender in, in Tony Allen and the defensive scheme that the Grizzlies had is solid. Um, again, I'm looking at that matchup with Joe Johnson. Allen, tenacious, great. He's still giving up three inches and some like forty pounds on, on Joe Johnson in their prime. Like, like as far as um, you know, height and, and measurements are just in the size and frame. I think that's an issue. And offensively, I mean, it, it would be it would be it would be a grind. It would be a grind for sure. One, that's just because of how the Grizzlies played. Two, you know, it wasn't like as, as effective as Zebo and Marcus was. Um, you know, there was lulls there. You could take them out, not take them out 
entirely, but for some double teams and some rotations and iffy outside shooting, although there was a few solid players up and down their roster, and I feel like the Nets would have the advantage in shooting, in my mind, very easily. I, I agree with that. I agree. She, you, you, yeah, the Nets are the better shooting team. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. And I, I think that some of that would kind of have just variance in three-point shooting, of course, but I think that there's enough solid shooters up and down their roster in my mind, and there is enough... Um, there is enough of a ski in place watching the Nets that they did play more through the three ball and, you know, selective penetration with Darren Williams that I think it's an issue um, for a team even as solid as the Grizzlies are. Um, yikes. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to find a compelling reason to say, no, this is why the Nets would clearly win. But you get enough knocks on it, and there was already a few that I saw as I evaluated them myself. But I can't seem to agree that the Grizzlies would just undoubtedly take it, especially since, you know, Zebo was great. Marcus Gasol, his offensive game would flourish, would continue to flourish, but I don't fully trust it. Then it was, he was a solid enough player, so was Mike Conley then, but again, it would get better. Um, it's not like we're getting the best offensive iteration of either of those two. Um, we're getting just solid iterations of them. And Zebo, yes, a monster offensively, but easily at his weaknesses. I think if he's getting people in the foul trouble, he's also going to be in foul trouble just because of being exploited on the perimeter or in matchups that force him to use his limited athleticism um, again and again and again. Either that or bleeding three-point buckets as we saw you know, in other series, even in the Western Conference of that year. So, I don't know. I, what, what are your thoughts here? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 uh, the final... Uh, the final puncture that I will try to inflict on the the, the, the 2013-14 Brooklyn Nets before we decide on who will win this series is looking at uh, the Nets uh, rebounding. They were in the 27th percentile in offensive rebounding and in the 25th percentile in defensive rebounding. And again, if you're playing small with Paul Pierce, I, I, I mentioned, you know, attacking him on the block, but also think about all those offensive rebounds that Zach Randolph's going to be snatching up. That is true. That is true. <laughs> it is a fascinating. It is a fascinating dynamic, and and both teams have uh, some some strengths, and, and both teams have some depth. And yeah, the the small versus big lineups would would uh, would provide some some interesting contrasts going on. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts after we've kind of broken this down. Who do you think uh, wins the series, and in how many games? <sighs> so. I had had, and let me Nets. let me let me uh, let me reiterate that the uh, the 2011 Memphis Grizzlies have home court advantage in this seven game series. Uh, <laughs> I see you, Garrett. <laughs> I see you. I had had the Nets originally in seven. I didn't think it would be quote unquote easy, but I thought that the Nets uh, had enough, especially in the matchups I had outlined as far as. Joe Johnson and Pierce that to be the strength take advantage of a Grizzlies team that I thought wasn't they were great and solid and maybe I didn't watch enough of them but weren't like the pure peak that I would remember them in like 2012-13 you know those last three years however you brought up rebounding and I, I thought to glance real quick um and obviously you know for the season I was seeing um what the Nets had had average and who was their leading rebounder I was always looking at rebounding percentage although it came out of the pack no big deal. Like, I'm not super concerned. But then I'm thinking, okay, if they go through, 
you know, a team that I do remember watching Grizzlies, and I even covered them a, a little bit for SB Nation um, a couple years back. And that was one thing that Zach Randolph was great at, Marcus Gasol, volleying under the boards and, and, and gobbling up those guys, and even having guys like um, a Tony Allen who would go there and grab some, like a Mike Conley would go in and grab some. So, uh, and I look back, and the leading rebounder for both the regular season, first round, and second round of the playoffs for the um, Nets was our uh, 20. Minutes a night, Kevin Garnett. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, after that is uh, Brooke Lopez, who's not even admissible in this one. And then we go down to Andre Blatch and uh, Reggie Evans, who, uh, I mean, Reggie averaged uh, under 15 minutes a game, and Andre didn't. So, I'm going to flip it. I'm going to flip it. I went Nets in seven. I'm going to go Grizzlies in seven. I, I Nope, I might go Grizzlies. I'm going to go Grizzlies in s- No! I'm going to go Grizzlies in six. I'm not going to think about it anymore, because... Then I'm defeating my own argument, but I really talked up in my head and had myself convinced that the Nets could win this in a kind of drag-out style where, yes, you know, they use their three-point shooting and space the floor, but know that they're in for a dogfight and just take advantage of the Grizzlies' overall lack of athleticism and key uh, defensive mismatches. But that rebounding is a struggle that I, that I, can't, I can't overlook. Yeah, so initially I had Grizzlies in six, but you made enough of a compelling case for the Nets. And, and, and frankly, if, if, if Kevin Garnett could play 35 to 40 minutes in this series, I, I, would, I, would give, I would probably give the series to the Nets. But just because he's not capable of even playing half the game, uh, that's, that's a good chunk of time that Zebo gets to attack a, a lesser defender, uh, not only uh, on the block but on the board. So yeah, I'll go... Uh, I initially had Grizzlies in six. You convinced me to push it back to uh, I've got Grizzlies in seven. Hey, see, I, I'm glad I was able to thank you. I was glad I was able to make at least some kind of compelling case. And yeah, I was looking at the minutes because I thought the same thing. I was like, maybe Kevin could play, you know, a little more, you know, in the playoffs. I'm sure Kevin Garnett played more than 20 minutes. Nope. He played 20 <laughs> minutes a night against the Raptors and then 21 minutes a night against the Heat. So, yeah. you know, hard count on what you were getting. And with that level of production, especially from the board's perspective where you would need that, um, in, a, in, a, in a game where I don't see a lot of great marksmanship. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, like you said, I'm glad we got a good tough match about the two and great compelling arguments. But, yeah, it, it, great great last puncture because I would have walked away going, eh, I think I did all right. I think I think the Nets walk away. But that rebounding was, was one I, the, the, the Achilles heel there. All right. So uh, we, uh, we've agreed on the first two. Let's move on to matchup number three, which is a one – one that uh, I've been excited to talk about, in particular the team I'm defending, which is the 2005 Indiana Pacers. And in this matchup, they're taking on a, a team I know Corbin is fond of, the 1995 Charlotte Hornets. Now the Hornets do get home court in this series. And uh, Corbin, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about that Hornets team? All right. I mean, Charlotte Hornets, uh, Alan Bristow was their coach, um, as he was the guy who really led them in the first couple of years uh, to some uh, relevancy, this uh, early uh, Hornets roster. They finished second in the Central Division at 50-32. and 32. Very solid team in, both top, in top 10 in both offensive and defensive rating, uh, rating ninth in both. Um, a little bit, you know, toward the bottom pack in pace uh, in 22nd in that, in that end of the spectrum. But they're played through a dominant Twin Towers tandem, if you will, of uh, Alonzo Mourning and Larry Johnson. Uh, very much again this forward big this big man tandem that was a lot like the argument I gave earlier with Chris Webber and um, and Jawan Howard. Um, Alonzo Mourning, beast on the boards, 21 points, just under 10 rebounds tonight. Larry Johnson being a little bit more of a do it all 
uh, small forward, eight or uh, do it all forward, eighteen points, uh, seven rebounds, four and a half assists a game. Really solid play from him. In the backcourt, you had a, a Muggsy Bose who was small but dynamic, uh, uh, just uh, uh, blur up the court, eleven points and eight assists a night, getting the Hornets into their offense. Um, not being as bad of a mismatch defensively as you might think. Yes, five three is very small and can beat bees, but uh, enough to stay on the court, uh, especially playing a pretty high 33 minutes a night. Um, Hersey Hawkins being a very solid shooting guard, um, very solid three-point shooter, 44% from three, uh, could also handle the ball in a pinch and play some point guard, uh, average 14, three and three. Um, Scott Burrell, uh, the guy of uh, the last dance fame with Michael Jordan at the time, was still 24, um, 11 points, five rebounds, two assists tonight, very much a three and D type player, 40% from three. You had another gunner off the bench in Del Curry, uh, who, again, 42% from three on five attempts tonight. Another guy in Michael Adams, another small uh, offense in a pocket, offense in a pinch kind of performance, six points and three assists a game. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I was excited about this team. Kenny Gaddison was another uh, solid rebounder. Uh, 41-year-old Robert Parrish, I mean, he was there. <laughs> he, played, he played. He played. eighty-one. He played eighty-one games, which was pretty solid. But at this point, like, I'm not gonna make any uh, any any claims about him being a, a dominant player. I mean, the dude was 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 past his prime, playing past his prime. So, <laughs> no. Um, but he he would get sixteen minutes a night and then gobble up a couple rebounds and um, per thirty-six look a lot better. But um, on the regular, just uh, five and five basically. And this team went comfortably, I'd say, 10 deep. Even Tony Bennett was a solid guard. Uh, didn't play at all that season um, just due to injury. But yeah, we're going by him being healthy. Another guy who can stretch the floor a little bit um, and, 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 and make some offense as well. So, I mean, I, I think that this team is one that I was enamored to watch. And I went on YouTube and watched some old Hornets games, and it, it was it was it was nice. This, I think this is the last this last year that you have before they're broken up. Yeah. Um, and by broken up, I mean the, the two bigs, particularly Alonzo Mourning, um, going to the Heat, and uh, Larry Johnson going to the Knicks. But this was a very solid team. The last one of real contention, and I think all in all, a solid mix of inside outside play with some guys who had some off the bounce ability um, when called upon. There wasn't really a small forward of a of a Kendall Gill or a Johnny Newman like they had in the past. But uh, kind of the strength by playing through their two bigs and then shooting by association, I think, was uh, pretty solid and a recipe to their success. Yeah, and uh, just speaking to Alonzo Mourning, he, he spent three years in Charlotte. The 93 team as a rookie, they, they actually won uh, against the Boston Celtics in the first round of the playoffs in advance, but that team only won 44 games. His second season, they missed the playoffs entirely. So uh, out of those three teams, I thought this team, clearly from a regular season standpoint, was was the best team of the three that uh, the morning played for. And yeah, losing in the first round, especially when it's to the Chicago Bulls, is, uh, is nothing to be ashamed of. They lost in that series three games to one. But uh, that, that Hornets team with a positive 3.5 net rating. And also uh, another thing speaking to the fact that this team's going to be healthy. I don't know if you, if you noticed this, Corbin, but Scott Burrell partially tore his right Achilles late in the regular season and missed the entire playoffs. So uh, having him healthy, I think, would have uh, made that series against the Bulls even, even more competitive. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Between him and, and Bennett, I mean, that was his last season. Um, in general in the NBA. So I, I think those two would swing it the other way in a major way because that that was kind of um, 
two weaknesses that, I mean, they would have still lost to the Bulls anyway, but left them shorthanded going in. So, no, I'm right there with you. Uh, Scott Burrell was a major uh, piece then, and you're right, only getting 62 games out of the regular season, um, even then, was very effective in my mind as far as being able to do a little bit of everything, 11, uh, 5, and, and 3, you know, pretty solid, and watching him and his three-point shooting ability, yeah, that was that was real, and uh, I was able to see that in, in a few ways. The way I like the way the Hornets play in general, knowing where the strength was, both their key players in Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning be able to score in the post, bully their way on the glass, but also stretch it out um, to about the foul line area for Mourning, and then even out to three for Larry Johnson. Yeah, so speaking to the, the 2005 Indiana Pacers, this is really, uh, and, and part of the reason why I, I uh, enjoy talking about them is they are a what-if proposition. Uh, they, uh, they, they weren't able to fulfill their potential and uh, ended up losing in the second round of the playoffs, but uh, this is a team in the previous season under the same coach, Rick Carlisle, one of the best coaches in the history of the sport, uh, and, and a similar roster, they won 61 games before falling to the eventual champion Detroit Pistons in six games. But uh, this, uh, this team had the likes of Jamal Tinsley at point guard, um, Steven Jackson, who they acquired, who they didn't have in the previous season. So uh, he's a guy that just a couple of years coming off being a starting wing for the, the 2003 champion San Antonio Spurs, and also a couple years before he's... Uh, uh, part of that uh, 2007 We Believe Warriors team. So Steven Jackson still smack dab in his prime. You've got uh, Ron, formerly Ron Artest, uh, currently uh, Meta World Peace. Uh, the, uh, he was actually the defensive player of the year in the 2003-04 season. And uh, also Jermaine O'Neal, one of the best big men at that time. Uh, and then you've got the likes of Austin Crozier, uh, Dale Davis, and Anthony Johnson off the bench. And uh, this is the the 0405 team, of course, is the team that had the malice in the palace, the crazy eruption with Metal World Peace getting hit by, uh, I believe, a cup <laughs> and uh, wa- running up into the stands and uh, throwing punches and, and Steven Jackson also going into the crowd. Metal World Peace was suspended for the entirety of the rest of that season. And uh, he was the Pacers' best player. Again, uh, reigning defensive player of the year and also in those seven games was uh, was showing an improved offensive skill set that uh, he hadn't shown in the past, was shooting over 40% from three, uh, nearly 50% from the field, and averaging around 24 points a game. So providing that, uh, you know, top 10, borderline, even top five level of two-way wing play. Um, and, and, yeah, Steve, Steven Jackson was suspended for 30 games. Uh, so the team was able to still, again, make the second round of the playoffs before falling to that same Detroit Pistons team. But uh, they really didn't, uh, you know, their championship hopes, I think, uh, went out as soon as uh, World Peace was, was suspended for the season. Uh, but, but that team just had a load of talent, including, uh, you know, Reggie Miller in his final season. He was still a, a productive role player. Oh, yeah. I actually watched um, uh, 2005 uh, Lakers... Uh... Pacers game kind of anticipation just some of it and I was very surprised that even at an advanced age how effective Reggie Miller still was for that team yeah um and you're right definitely a role player sadly you know in a, in a time where because of those injuries he was kind of thrust back into a semi kind of star type role which at that point he was in no way able to sustain um or to even kind of you know have with that level of play 
but in general, yeah, it was a, a very solid team and, and, a, and a crazy what if because if you make it to the finals, I'm just going to talk about for a split second. It's like, okay, you have that team, great, but the inside play, I think Tim Duncan would have had a, a crazy time because he had a tough series against one of the best uh, big man defenders in Ben Wallace back then. But you would think that it would might be conceivably easier for him, even if that Pacers team was so deep and talented and, you know, Jamal Tinsley and others like that on the team, Jermaine O'Neal, you know, a solid play that they they would have had a good chance to represent it and get Reggie a ring on his way out. That was probably one of his better teams, and that's saying a lot, um, considering that 2000 team that made to the finals and broke through in that 98 team that almost did that we talked about and covered in depth against the Bulls. Yeah, and that '98 team, of course, is in our uh, is in our bracket as well. But they didn't have to to get to uh, go through the play-in uh, contest. And the reason the Pacers have to be in here is because, be, uh, due to the malice in the palace and the suspensions and everything, they they only won 44 games. They were the 20th ranked offense, 11th ranked defense. Uh, but again, the, the the team the previous season that was. Uh, pretty similar in terms of the roster construction. They were ninth on offense and third on defense, and I thought they had the ability to be even better than that if uh, if all the shenanigans in Detroit did not take place. But, you know, you speak to, um, you know, the, the, the Pistons being good at defending Tim Duncan, but Jermaine O'Neal was an excellent defensive player. He, he made second team All-NBA in that 03-04 season, and I think the only reason he didn't make one of the All NBA teams in 0405 is just because the you know those those All NBA teams are often predicated by the the team's one loss record. Um, so you know, uh, Meta World Peace was third team All NBA in that 0304 season, and of course, yeah, won that as I mentioned earlier, won that Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, but but speaking to that 0405 team again, this is on a small sample, but the lineups. With uh, with Jermaine O'Neal, Meta World Peace, Austin Crozier, Jamal Tinsley, and Steven Jackson, which was the starting lineup they went to when our test played in his seven games that he was healthy. He actually, even prior to the to the Malice in the Palace, missed the start of the season with an injury. Uh, but but that five man starting lineup, they were plus twenty one points per hundred possessions. Uh, so uh, that and and they were six and one. They had a six and one record in the seven games that Meta World Peace played, and so you know that team seemed very very capable of of continuing the the, the progress that they had made the previous year, winning sixty one games and, and getting even better. Uh, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, the injuries and the suspensions kind of just derailed everything. But boy, oh boy, you know you you talk about. Uh, the the wing play with with Reggie Miller and Steven Jackson and Meta World Peace and, and even Austin Crozier had a uh, stretch four element to his game, plus that uh, that two way center in Jermaine O'Neal and a quality starting point guard in Jamal Tinsley, there really wasn't too many weaknesses with this uh, with that Indiana Pacer team. No, they were pretty solid across the board. Um, they remind me very much like my '95 Charlotte Hornets here. <laughs> if we're being honest, I mean. You know, they, they, a solid up and down mix of, of shooting, of defense, of, of, of um, offensive creation. Uh, Muggsy Bogues being, you know, 5'3", if the dude was 6'4", well, 6'5", six, six, and I'm talking about, I feel very, very good about them just not even being a playing team, but just being really, really solid win-loss record and all aside. Um, Scott Burrell, again, healthy. It's solid for him as far as a swingman small forward. Hersey Hawkins, one of the underrated shooting guards of the 90s um, and definitely had yep. a couple of good years uh, from early on with the 76ers in the early 90s to 
even now with the um, Charlotte Hornets here. And again, the strength in, in the big man tandem or the forward, I want to say forward tandem with Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning being your two stars that you can play through in stretches, both um, very good offensively and very solid on the defensive end. I'm a Mourning a lot more so probably than, uh, than Johnson, but Johnson was no slouch either. Um, and again, we're assuming healthiness. I like both abilities there in their bench. I think, again, some of the, the Hornets, their, their bench was, was pretty solid. You come up with uh, uh, Greg Sutton played a lot more minutes at backup guard than Michael Adams. Um, but, again, we're going by, by health, so I'm going with Michael Adams more. Um, not being quite the gunner he was for the Denver Nuggets uh, back in his heyday, but still someone who could get up shots in a hurry and, and fill up with offense. Del Curry being a very solid um, backup uh, shooting guard. Uh, and along with David Wingate, who kind of swung between shooting guard and small forward. Small forward might be the one weakness, I think, for the Hornets. Uh, David Wingate kind of spelled across both ends, as well as Del Curry, to make up for the fact that they really had Darren Hancock, who played 424 minutes as, like, the really, uh, like, in-name backup small forward. But then power forward, again, you have Tom Tolbert, who we mentioned before um, in our last play in a tournament. He's still a member of this team. He only played 57 minutes, but was there. Kenny Gattinson. Um, and Joe Wolf, and then uh, again, I like our center matchup where Robert Parrish somehow got 13. Uh, he got a, a bunch of time, like yeah. 41. He was getting some minutes, man. So uh, I like the bench depth. I think it obviously isn't as strong as the starters, but I think that there's special attributes, mostly in ways of outside shooting and offense. But you do have some rebounding with Gaddison and, and at least some semblance of defense with Robert Parrish. I think is pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, you, you you were kind of poking fun at Robert Parrish, and yeah, he, he is 41 and not nearly as good as he was, uh, you know, some 10 years earlier when the Celtics were were at their peak. But, uh, I mean, he was, he was uh, you know, unusual in that, for one, like, you really couldn't tell just by looking at the guy that he had aged a single day um, between that time. But, uh, you know, he, he, he did age, I think, uh, as far as... Uh, not only his looks, but his play on the court reasonably well. He was, uh, you know, um, you know, not certainly not a, a starting caliber player anymore like he was in the mid '80s. But uh, you know, yeah, I, I thought he was a was a solid backup center. Uh, the the interesting thing for me, speaking to the matchups, and, and you talk about the, the the Hornets team kind of playing to their strengths and playing through the likes of of Morning and Johnson and uh, and Hawkins. Uh, I, I'm pretty confident in what I can throw at those guys with this Pacers roster. I can put Jermaine O'Neal on the likes of Alonzo Mourning. I can put the Defensive Player of the Year in Meta World Peace on Larry Johnson. And I can put uh, Steven Jackson on Hersey Hawkins. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like those matchups. I think they're solid. I do, especially when you're talking about Steven Jackson and Hersey Hawkins, who is solid enough, but I think Steven Jackson's size length and, and moderate defensive ability um, would kind of make that at best a wash in terms of um, being able to have solid defense. I, I think as solid as Jermaine O'Neal was, um, as solid as the main rotation you have is, I I, I I feel very confident about Larry Johnson long to morning being the strength there. Um, I don't see them yet. They'd have some interesting matches, especially whichever player um, Jermaine O'Neal is on for the defensive end, but both guys were dynamic, were bruisers. I think O'Neal you know, he had, he had length and size. He was very good at moving his feet as far as being uh, defensively capable. But Larry Johnson was a monster. A lot of the same thing. And I like both of their ability to play on all three levels. Um, well, for Larry Johnson. Also be someone who was a really good offensive uh, 
or a sneaky good offensive uh, uh, distributor or initiator um, from the power forward spot as far as distributing the ball. Well, Alonzo Mourning, yeah, maybe a little bit more limited on his offensive ability, but was very skilled in the post. You know, had that Georgetown, uh, that Georgetown big man package around there. Yeah. <laughs> and um, was, was someone who could, who could hammer the glass. You have guys in Indiana who could stick in front of them, and that's great, but I still think if I'm looking at them both lineup to lineup, I would probably give the edge more, again, to my big men um, if I'm the 95 Hornets. Yeah, it, uh, it would be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Alonzo Mourning is still going to get his. Larry Johnson will still get his. I just uh, I think with, with what I can throw at them, I can get them a little bit uh, you know, off their game, make them slightly less efficient than they normally would be. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the other thing to consider when you talk about the likes of, uh, you know, the different eras here, again, the, we, we've had a couple of matchups where this has come into play, but the shortened three-point line in the 94-95 season, you know, I've got the likes of, of Reggie Miller, Stephen Jackson, Meta World Peace, Austin Crozier, guys that could shoot the three ball, and now they've got a little bit of an edge as well where uh, the, the line is a bit shorter above the arc. That's true. I mean, off, offensively, I feel like those, at least Crozier and, and, and the other ones you mentioned that have um, a, a good way of stepping out are, are solid. I think that the Hornets have, again, with the exception of Morning, Parrish, um, looking maybe in Gaddison, I think you have enough three-point shooting up and down the roster. Um, but we got to look past Muggsy as well. Not really a great outside shooter. <laughs> Between Hawkins, Curry, Wilgate, Burrell, um, Tolbert, even Wolf had, had, had could shoot a little stretch out a little bit, may not quite to three, but in general, I think there's enough there that I'm looking at the Hornets saying, okay, they're very solid three point wise as well, and that yeah, if we're going between the two, I, I may like Indiana in terms of taking more, but as far as the propensity to make threes, I, I actually like uh, Charlotte as well in, the, in that way. I mean, they they were pretty solid across the board in there. Um, Again, just a team that you're right. You would have problems with their bigs. But also, I think that the point guard matchup might work in favor of the Hornets. Hmm, interesting. I so like Muggsy's ability. I mean, yeah, he's small and can be exploited in mismatch. But now without taking the paces out the way they want to play. And he was a little pest. He was an irritant on that end. And with his speed, I mean, that was a big fact. Being able to pickpocket, get up and down the floor in a hurry, and get the get mismatches, exploit mismatches in transition, you know, probably find a favorable matchup for Larry Johnson or a um, Alonzo Mourning by just bringing the ball to court the way he did and, and, and searching for those very quickly or penetrating the rim before others came and, and, and possibly putting some more pressure um, and foul trouble on on the Indiana Bigs. Um, Shooting-wise, you know, he was kind of limited. Uh, he got better around, what, late 90s bar shooting and uh, by the end of the career, was at least making at least a couple threes. That was never his strong suit, but he had a decent team footer they could go to, and again, his strength was kind of going amongst the trees, um, and if not creating for himself often, um, enough really making opportunities for others. Yeah, so I can tell, uh, you know, you, you said at the outset that you watched a bunch of uh, of Charlotte Hornets games. I could tell you didn't watch too much of the Pacers because uh, liking that point guard matchup, I actually uh, feel the opposite because Jamal Tinsley, I think one of the strengths that he had as a as a point guard was he kind of had that, uh, he was kind of out of the Mark Jackson mold where he was pretty good as a back down player. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he had a bit of a post game as a point guard. 
and uh, <laughs> against the likes of Muggsy Bogues, I really, I really like that advantage. I mean, you, I, I get you. I mean, okay, so for one, uh, funding my watching of the Pacers, the only, the only game I watched was that, uh, that um, Lakers-Pacers matchup, and uh, Jamal was out. It was Anthony Johnson starting at point guard. Gotcha, so, yeah. Um, I, I did not. I, I will readily admit, at the same time, I mean, it, he wouldn't be the first trying to post up Muggsy. I mean, you actually had, <laughs> you know, you mentioned the Mark Jackson mode. How about the actual Mark Jackson back then? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this is not the first time that Muggsy, you know, was getting guards, was posting up, even watching a little bit of a Suns matchup I did. Kevin Johnson, and I was this game, was bringing it up and, and kind of backing Muggsy into the room. That was kind of the de facto move for the guards of, of the day to kind of take advantage of that 5-3 size. And yes, while he was able to get, you know, overwhelmed sometimes from a physical standpoint there, he was also a pest down there and, and forcing the point guard to play out of their level, you know, by bringing the ball up and focusing more on either getting the ball out or getting your shots. You're not in the rhythm and, and, and flow of the offense that, that you would like to be in. So I didn't see a lot. I didn't see any of Jamal Tinsley um, in terms of how you impact the game, but I would think that if you're playing a bunch of point guards who night in night out did the same strategy, I'd be willing to bet that there were some of the nineties who were a little more proficient at it than than Jamal. But um, that being said, uh, yeah, I, I could definitely be, see it being a weakness, and then Lord help him if he's on a switch with like a Steven Jackson or something. Yeah, I, I certainly or, you know or, or, or peace, yikes. <laughs> yeah, the um, the I, I do definitely see your argument in terms of. You know, yeah, you, you mentioned, like, Kevin Johnson doing it. You know, Kevin Johnson was not a post-up player. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I've, I've never been a fan of teams going to the post because of a mismatch when that isn't a part of that player's, uh, you know, package or skill set. But as far as uh, Jamal Tinsley is concerned, he he definitely, you know, went to the post game pretty consistently, and that was a part of that Pacers offense. So it's not as much of like, oh, we're attacking the mismatch as it is we're doing stuff that we normally do, and we're getting to do it against a 5-3 guy. Oh, I see what she's saying. I, I, I duly noted. <laughs> I can definitely say that. Yeah, I can definitely give that up. Well, yeah, the, um, the, the, the other thing to factor in is, you know, the, the, the hand-checking, of course. In 95, hand-checking was allowed, and uh, in, in, in 2005, it wasn't. So, you know, you talk about a player that's got the quickness of a, of a Muggsy Bogues. That, uh, I think that would benefit him attacking the hoop and, and, and being able to, you know, not have to deal with all of that contact. But then you've also got slashers like Steven Jackson and, and Meta World Peace. They, they are physical enough players that I think they could deal with the hand-checking in, in 95. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I really don't even have a response to that one. Like, that was something that was in play, but at the same time, you're right. The adapting time probably wouldn't have been as big an issue as, as one would think, you know? Yeah, so... Uh... Was there was there anything else about this particular matchup uh, that uh, that that you would like to talk about before we we uh, we come up with our picks? Well, again, I thought it was interesting being that a lot of what we're talking about with the Pacers is, is I mean, to be fair, hypothetical in terms of the impact that they would have had had those guys you know been on the court. And so I think that's an interesting one to kind of maneuver around. Um, yeah. Uh, we've already done it with some injuries and such. You know, Jim Jones breaking his foot and things of that sort. But in this way missing that much, yeah, being at speed, then, then yeah, I guess you would have to give some um, credence to the Pacers in that in that case, especially the quality of the players that were missing that time. At the same time, I mean, I'm looking at the Hornets, and I think that 
as great as the Pacers are, it's hard to almost keep it in context of how solid they were given where they were then and how they would have been in the annals of all time, like even Pacers teams, you know, in general, with those guys healthy because they were all very solid players. But looking at this 95 Hornets team and not saying that they're on that same level, I think there's some matches that could be exploited that, you know, the Pacers weren't as infallible as it may be looking back, even if they were a very good what-if team. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it just comes down to basing it off of what we did get to see, you know, and speaking to Reggie Miller, and, you know, he he was actually, uh, yeah, again, this was his last season. He was was good. You know, he had a 58.2% true shooting during the regular season on 20.8% usage. And then the playoffs, uh, pretty much the same, 58.3% true shooting on 21% usage. So still a, a very productive player. You speak to the fact that that 03-04 team with the same coach, with a lot of the same guys, won 61 games. You know, that that to me gives a pretty good indication of what the team could have been the following year, adding a player as talented as Steven Jackson. And you also factor in all, the, all their best players, the likes of Jamal Tinsley, Jackson, Jermaine O'Neal, Meta World Peace. They were all between 25 and 26 years old. So those guys typically are improving a little bit. They're still smack dab in their prime. So to me, like there, there's a lot of evidence to support that. If uh, if Meta World Peace doesn't uh, doesn't lose his cool, if uh, Steven Jackson doesn't lose his cool, that this team would have been a a potential all time great outfit. Yeah, I mean, I guess the potential is definitely there. I, I will say that. I, I I think my argument is I have to is that oh, there would be some things that wouldn't make them as as great. But looking back, you're right with those guys being in their prime and. Um, Federal piece really, you know, adding more elements to his offensive game, Steven Jackson being solid, even at an advanced age, having a, a guy like Jim Miller and a Jamal Tinsley and a, you know, a big man uh, lineup that has a, a shooter in crochet, but also Jermaine O'Neal, who was very good back then, I, I, I think is pretty, that's solid. All right, so uh, I'll start, and uh, I have yeah. the, uh, <laughs> uh, I have the, uh, the Indiana Pacers, Winning this in six games, again, the Hornets get home court, so this is the Pacers essentially. I have them uh, holding their own games at home uh, and taking one on the road to uh, to win the series in six. Uh, I had, again, I had Hornets in seven, but, I mean, even that, I have to say, like, was just on optimism that my argument would be compelling enough, because looking back, like, I know how, just how good, um, that 2005 team could have been, but um, at the same time, yeah, I'm, I'm about to take I'm about to take the same thing with you. I think the Hornets will make it enough of a problem. I think that big man Tenma again. I feel like I, I the teams I picked, man. I was looking at them like, oh yeah, give me Larry Johnson, give me give me Jawan Howard, give me Chris Webber. But then it's like, oh yeah, you know the rest of the team. Um, <laughs> that being said, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna say it so that the Hornets again enough trouble at home, like you mentioned, get their two games, make each game uh, tough. Um, but yeah, the pace is top end, uh, up and down, their balance is, 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 is too good. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to go patient in six as well. As much as I want to disagree with you, this is not one I want to take to the polls and be like, just soundly defeated. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, so three for three so far. And, uh, let's, let's move on to the fourth matchup, which is a, a really interesting one. Again, uh, one of these teams we, we covered in our, uh, our classic series pods, uh, but the the 1984 Detroit Pistons, which Corbin will be defending, 
and uh, I will be ta- defending the 1988 Utah Jazz. And uh, the Jazz have home court advantage in this series, in part because they won 47 games in the regular season, but then actually won around in the playoffs and took the eventual champion Lakers to seven in the Western Conference semifinals. Out of, uh, out of 23 teams that season, they finished uh, a, a poor 16th in offensive rating, but they were at the top, number one on the defensive rating out of 23 teams, in large part due to the enormous presence that was Mark Eaton. And uh, this team, this Jazz team, of course, uh, has John Stockton and Carl Malone. Young versions of them, 25 and 24, respectively. Those two guys putting up some some incredible counting stats, but then they've also got a guy in the likes of Thurl Bailey coming off the bench to provide that scoring punch. For the 84 Pistons, uh, they're kind of the opposite. And it's funny, you know, that series we did with the Pistons was against the, you know, the 84 first-round series between the Pistons and the Knicks. And the Knicks had a very similar offensive-defensive profile as this Jazz team. Uh, But that was a fun contrast in styles because the 84 Pistons were number one in the league on the offensive end of the floor. And uh, they were were pretty poor defensively. They were 16th out of 23 on defense. So so first and 16th, just flipping those for these two teams. Uh, And and the Pistons, of course, lost that series in five to the Knicks, three games to two, but actually had home court advantage taken away in some part because uh, Joe Louis Arena was uh, was holding a concert of some kind (laughs) at the time. Um, so, uh, yeah, that Pistons team going out in the first round, but, uh, you know, they had some of the guys that would be on that bad boys group later in the eighties in Isaiah Thomas, Bill Lambeer and the likes of Vinny Johnson. But, uh, yeah, I thought this was a, was a fascinating matchup in large part Corbin because of, again, that, that contrast that we saw in that 84 Pistons Knicks series. We see that in this matchup as well, because this jazz team is uh, an elite defensive group. Yeah, yeah, they were very solid. I remember that season watching some class games, not um, for this match, but just in general, even uh, up against the uh, Lakers, giving them a tough run, really kickstarting the start of the Jazz being a competitive team um, and, 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 and championship contender from basically, you know, well, I don't know, about 89, but for the next, like, 15 or so years up until, like, the early 2000s. Um, Stout defense, uh, as you know, we talked about the the Pistons here. So I feel like I'm reaching my old uh, discussion about how good Isaiah Thomas was and, <laughs> and and some decent shooting. But I like this match. Uh, in one, when I picked this team, I mean, I picked it to be challenging because I, I could have done the Jazz, but I mean, you gave me the option. But I like the Pistons, and all I remember is the point guard position and Isaiah Thomas just routinely giving John Stockton the business so much so that I know later in their career, like. I think it was 92-93, um, Isaiah Thomas lit up, socked in for 44 points um, on one matchup, and then the next matchup, um, in retaliation, uh, uh, while driving past Stockton to the hoop, um, yet again, um, Carl Malone led with an elbow in, quote-unquote, contesting the shot, and basically busted up Isaiah Thomas' eyelid, needed something like 20-something stitches or something, and caused him to spaz out on his uh, trainer for a bit there for a second, um, I would definitely uh, check that out, people who are interested. But Isaiah Thomas versus John Stockton was the key matchup to me because routinely back then, um, Isaiah Thomas would give John Stockton the business. 
And the reason I would choose to focus on that backcourt uh, point guard battle between Thomas and Stockton is because aside from uh, Bill and Beer, I really wouldn't want to think about uh, who's going to guard Carm alone. And knowing that you're going to go to that, I would rather shy away and keep it to the guards. Uh, so let's, let's, let's do that, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the guy you're speaking of is probably Kelly Tripuka. And uh, funny enough, he's actually on both of these teams. Uh, <laughs> uh, Tripuka was actually Can't traded stop. in the deal that, uh, that brought Adrian Dantley to Detroit. Um, and uh, Tribuca, after having a couple of great years with the Pistons, ended up kind of sitting on the pine and, and, and being pretty unhappy in Utah. So uh, Tripuca is a star for the 84 Pistons, and we've got a, an older 28-year-old version on the Jazz that, that doesn't really play much. Uh, so, so that's fascinating, but uh, at least I have that to my advantage that I have a scout on my bench that can, that can tell me how to defend Tripuca. Um, but, oh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, um, the interesting thing about the Jazz is they, they didn't have much of a bench. They played six guys pretty heavy minutes. You know, Thurl Bailey, he was the third scorer for this team, a really good forward that could put the ball on the floor, good athlete, could shoot it to, to the mid-range area. Uh, but, uh, you know, he played like 40 minutes a night off the bench, so he basically played like a starter. Um, so, so the Jazz didn't go very deep, but relied on the likes of, of Stockton and Malone to play heavy minutes, Mark Eaton, Thurl Bailey, and they also had uh, Bob Hansen, who kind of played the, uh, the Jeff Hornacek rule that, uh, role that we saw in the, in the mid to late 90s, uh, playing off the ball and, and being that uh, shooting presence. Uh, but, but yeah, the, the Jazz also, you know, both these teams played pretty fast. And the Jazz really, uh, you know, were, were able to use that number one ranked defense to get out on the break. John Stockton, of course, a great passer, uh, finding Malone on the wing to, to go down and, and slam at home or uh, to, to find Hanson for, for an 18-foot jumper. So the Jazz, definitely a team that that played off of their defense, and, and the Pistons were really, you know, they played fast, but they were also a, a pretty prolific half-court unit as well. Yeah, um, I think all, all of the balance across the board um, was a key, and I feel like a few of these teams that we talked about um, just uh, in playing were, were types that obviously, you know, they're, they're, they're playing in for a reason, but across the board had some surprising uh, either decent depth or, or uh, across the board balance in terms of their play um and, and this, was, this was no exception yeah so uh the the coaching matchup you know the 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 jazz had uh frank Layden as their head coach this was prior to the to the jerry sloan days and uh, the pistons of course with the legendary chuck daly so i i give you the the coaching edge of this matchup uh, I, I, I was gonna i was gonna use that as right off my notes i was gonna say <laughs> No, I'm getting that one right. <laughs> yeah. I love Frank Layton, funny guy, but uh, yeah. And again, I like the Pistons bench with uh, with Vinny, the Microwave Johnson, Earl, the Twirl, Curitan, Lionel Hollins, Cliff Levingston, uh, and, and again, the, the the Jazz didn't have much off the bench at all, aside from Thurl Bailey, who was essentially a starter, just uh, cast as a as a bench guy. Uh, they they started Mike Ivoroni, who who had played some. Uh, a, a, a smaller role on the the champion '83 Sixers, but but he kind of got the Keith Bogans where he uh, he he was in there for four to six minutes to start the first and second half and came out. Yeah, and by the way, I also get uh, the best in uh, 
in our, our nicknames as well. Like, like we said, the <laughs> yeah. I don't see anyone in the Jazz who has that one. So uh, I'll take those two early Ws, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Talking about the Pistons, yeah, a lot of their, their strength, and again, we referenced this in the earlier matches, so what was fun was, was offense. Um, number one in offensive rating, uh, third in points per game that season. Um, middle of the pack defensively, again, this is, you know, for the 80s back then, uh, 16th, fifth in place, in, in not place, fifth in pace. And you're right, across the board, you know, you had some some big men. Terry Tyler was a guy who had some uh, decent offensive ability, but it was really going to Isaiah Thomas, who was just the straw that stirs the drink for the Pistons. Arch Puka, like you mentioned, a guy who could get his shot off and, and little else, but, you know, 24-3, and three, not bad. Um, Bill Lambeer, solid. Uh, he had a decent jumper. Hasn't stretched out to three yet. Um, but another guy who did a little pick and uh, could do a little pick and pop. He was a, a, more of a guy around the basket area, 17 and 12 uh, for him. John Long, who uh, coincidentally had a little bit of a long ball. So there you go there. And, uh, <laughs> Michael and Vinny Johnson as well. But Cliff Levingston also gave him some very solid minutes off the, uh, off the bench of starting as well um, for this Pistons team. Yeah, the... Uh... So yeah, I'll, I'll concede coaching and depth. The one thing I'll take is uh, is defense, and also you know I like the talent, especially like when you when you take Ivoroni off the floor and put in their best lineups with Thurl Bailey. I think the, the 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 top five that I have with Utah with Stockton, Malone, Bailey, uh, Bob Hansen, and uh, and Eaton. I just love that five man unit. They've they've got multiple scores in at the forward spots in Malone and Bailey. So yeah, whoever uh, whoever you have uh, Tripuka guarding, I'm going to attack with uh, with a good score at that spot. Um, and and yeah, just the. Uh, I don't think it can be overstated the kind of paint and rim presence that Mark Eaton had at that time. He, like, pretty much by himself was uh, the reason this Jazz unit was uh, was so dominant on the defensive side of the ball. No, and, and again, a lot of it uh, is his, his sheer size and, and strength there. You're right, he was, was a very solid big and a really good rim deterrent, but I don't see him as much more than Marishon in terms of... Uh, in terms of um, mobility-wise. Interesting. I, I disagree with that statement. But <laughs> I mean, I've seen a little bit of it. For the 80s, yeah, and, and especially since it's not like they're, ice, they're not, you know, pick and roll and ice on them uh, to death like, like you would certainly have, you know, nowadays in this NBA. He, he could move a little bit, but I don't see him as, uh, to my mind, maybe I didn't watch enough 88 Utah, and I'm going to concede, especially when, you know, running up and down the court, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar isn't exactly, um, making me go, oh, yeah, like, that would definitely work. I mean, going end to end would be very solid, but um, I guess I can't even – I can't manipulate the Pistons to play the way that they would play in 2020 because in that case it would go all small ball and space out Utah and try to draw Eaton away from the basket at least a little bit there. But um, in terms of playing the way they are, especially being so close in the same – literally just four years apart in era, they're playing similarly. Um, I mean – this one, to me, was the hardest one to really argue for, and that's why I kind of wondered. But then, looking at some games, I couldn't even do that because my strength in my mind is is going to uh, go at playing through Thomas and Chapuka offensively. Defensively, though, Chapuka's giving up just as many points. I'm like, okay, great. We'll put Bill Lambeer on Carl Malone. Defensively, Lambeer was solid enough and, and was definitely, um, at, this, at this time, 26, young and, and more in his prime as far as um, having that defensive ability and not being so much just a voice guy that he would become later in his career, you know, to kind of help the Pistons uh, get settled. So in my mind, that 
is what I would do. You're using Vinny Dawson a lot. You're putting pressure on John Stockton a lot. And you're playing that mid-range in-between game to kind of not directly challenge Mark Eaton because that's not that that's not the plan at all. But at the same time, um, kind of drawing him out just enough for getting your shots where you can by early penetration or, you know, in the half court and then just stopping short and popping short jumpers at Isaiah Thomas was, was really kind of his want. That was really what he was really uh, his best at as far as shooting range, even if he could stretch that three a little bit. But um, it's weird because this Utah team had some guys, like you said, in the third Bailey, in, in them alone, in, in a team that was proficient defensively, and in Ian, who was a great deterrent. But uh, I don't know. It's like the Pistons don't – their offensive ability would be kind of negated because the shots that they would – normally take with the freedom that they would have they don't have with Ian in the picture but I just don't I see a system where I don't know a lot of that goes through Stockton alone even that early you know you have Thurl Bailey who's who's pretty good and he's going to get his points but aside from that um Daryl Griffith at the time was solid even if injuries kind of sapped his effectiveness on um Mark Ian aside from seven and eight wasn't really giving you too much unless you know there was some footage you watched that I missed and I just don't know about um, the overall bench for the Jazz seems lacking. Like you said, the Pistons' depth is there, but the depth is skewed in one direction or the other, and the balance seems weird to me to argue to contend with this Jazz team in a way that will make them overcome it, you know? Yeah, and, and again, just to speak to the uh, the Mark Eaton uh, versus George Mirasan comment, uh, um Murasan averaged uh, 1.5 blocks per game and then per 36 minutes averaged 2.4, whereas Eaton, for his career, averaged 3.5 blocks per game and per 36 minutes at 4.4. So, uh, you know, yes, I I definitely agree if you're talking about um, Mark Eaton playing in 2020, would he get exposed on the perimeter? Yes, he would. Uh, But, uh, you know, I, I think in terms of his rim protection, his his influence defensively he's not just a tall person he uh, he legitimately <laughs> was uh, was a paint presence a, a rim deterrent and uh, yeah the uh, I, I noticed watching uh, I was watching the, the the jazz Lakers series from uh, from 1988 and and Carl Malone actually got a second team all defense and you know Malone I think was was uh, was an okay defensive player, but at no point do I think he was dominant on that end of the floor. And uh, I, I think he's largely being rewarded because of how good that Jazz defense was, and I think that was in large part, uh, large part due to Eaton. His presence, I, I I can understand that, and I I can agree with you there on that. I'm not even gonna put. Yeah, I, I get you. And I guess I guess it's a little more his. I'm more in between now. Let's just say, I mean, I didn't watch enough, so I couldn't make that much of an argument on it as far as him being just another stiff of the 80s and maybe the impact just being that it wasn't as spaced out or dynamic as it was later. But, I mean, even for his career, was was very solid in that regard. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to throw it back. That was, a, that was a great defense, and you've uh, negated my argument there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, 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 the point you made earlier that I liked was the idea that, and, and it would be a fun matchup, of course, between Isaiah Thomas and John Stockton, but... 
but the idea that that Thomas kind of had his way, and, and of course there's the whole controversy over Stockton getting uh, the the call for the dream team over Isaiah Thomas. Uh, it, it definitely wasn't deserved. Isaiah Thomas was the superior player. Maybe maybe in 92 it had changed, but uh, I would say, you know, if, if I'm talking who's better between 84 Thomas and 88 Stockton, I, I think it's it's pretty easily Thomas, especially when you factor in the, the defensive side of the ball. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that is a bit of a concern. The, the, the positive thing for me as, uh, as, as the Utah Jazz, and again, going back to Eaton, is, you know, if... If Zeke blows by Stockton, I do have that uh, that second tier of defense at the rim. Um, so so uh, it, it is going to be an interesting thing of okay, can the can the Pistons score enough and and uh, keep up with uh, with mostly living through the mid range and, and and again they did have some some mid range maestros with the likes of of Lambeer and and Johnson and, and John Long. True, I mean, and, and exactly that would be a, a strength. Um, for certain, especially again in a time where the three-point line isn't full, um, isn't utilized uh, as much for either team. Um, I think if I remember correctly, Stockton hit the most for you guys at like 24. If uh, I have to look this up to, to back it up, we're here for the facts here. So um, let me check that real quick. But in general, no, it was actually uh, Bob Hanson and then, uh, oh no, Stockton was fourth. It was Bob Hanson, Chapuka. Uh, Griffith and Stockton, and Hanson had the most with 32. So, I mean, for either team, that wasn't really a strength. Mid-range, you're right, and I think that we'd have to go to that because inside play, um, I mean, you, you had some guys who could definitely get baskets in in, in, in the post, but I think the strength uh, is solely with Utah in terms of inside dominance. Um, like you said, even the fact that Carmelo may have gotten um, more credit defensively due to the brilliance of, of Mark Eaton on that and making him look better, he was still a solid enough defender for certain, um, and definitely more so than any uh, post presence that the Pistons may offer. Um, at the same time, mid-range, you're right, you did mention a few that would definitely get their buckets easy, and I, I would be counting on not only Isaiah Thomas to be able to get buckets, but have moments where he's the one player on both sides that I could see could kind of go supernova like he did in that series we talked about with the Knicks where, you know, they're just a uh, consistent you know, 15 points in a quarter, 20, you know. And once he gets into a rhythm, you know how he'll get from three in general. He's the one guy who, with the dynamic offensive ability, I think can just easily create offense for himself um, on a consistent basis on both squats. Yeah, and, and again, I think the the interesting thing in comparing this series to the series we did with the, the 84 Pistons-Knicks matchup is that the Knicks obviously went to Bernard King, and, and he dominated in the half court. Uh, just uh, scoring over the the likes of uh, of Tribuca and Levingston and, and some of the other guys they might throw out there at at power forward Kent Benson as well. So so I, I suppose the the eighty eight Jazz strategy is going to be a lot of that in the half court as well as just taking advantage of the likes of of Malone on the block. Yeah, I mean that would be the one. I, I even then that's weird. I, maybe I, as much as I was trying to badmouth E, and I, I feel weird about it just because, like, I don't feel confident about the Pistons' inside play in Spurs. Now, if he's not there, then yes, for sure, by all means, go glad him. Um, but in general, I'm willing to concede that, hey, Utah has a, a pretty good, um, you know, big big man rotation or starting five that, you know, even if you put Daryl Griffin out there, is sol- I mean, not Daryl Griffin, um, Bale, uh, throw Bailey out there, that, that's, that's pretty solid, um, and that you're working the mid-range, working your guard rotation 
which I think is more of Utah's weak point, at least especially on the defensive end, than it would be in general. Yeah, and and not only the guard, uh, the starting guards on defense, but also just the the, the guard depth. They don't have much at the at the backup <laughs> spot. So uh, that's the other interesting thing is you know if we're talking about this series being an up and down affair. Uh, how well would uh, would the Jazz be able to keep up with with Detroit kind of going deeper and, and not having their guys play quite as heavy a minutes? What you know, what kind of toll would that take over the course of a series? Although, uh, you know, the '88 Jazz kept up with the Showtime Lakers for seven games and made it a pretty competitive series, despite essentially only playing six guys. Yeah, that's true. That that was a compelling point, especially against a team that. You know, and the Lakers weren't, 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 weren't super duper deep, but definitely had some pieces to go. And the fact that those guys, it, it, it reminds me of the same argument we're going to make with um, Washington Bullets. Oh, right. In terms right. of not being able to, you know, they had they had all those points getting played those many minutes. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw that. I'm a, I'm, I would accept that, except that I mean, it didn't work for my bullets, so I'm not going to let it work for the Jazz. But. <laughs> You're right. Touche. <laughs> Touche. Was there anything else about this series? Again, the the Jazz have home court advantage in this series. Um, was there was there anything else about this series that uh, you thought we should discuss before we make our picks? Not really. I mean, we already went through the coaching, went through the bench, a lack of three point shooting, different strategies. Um, yeah, I, I think we've kind of delved into it as, as deep as we could in terms of possible like matchups and, and how they would perform against each other. You know, given on the team that they were. Um, Vinny Johnson's impact, I think, would be interesting. I think you would have Bob Hansen or Dow Griffith to probably put on him, but I think it wouldn't be that much of a problem for the microwave to get his shots off, yeah. um, especially being more his prime than he was later in his career, you know, or at the championships where he was a little bit more towards 30. So I think that he could be a potential X factor for the series in terms of being able to create um, reliable offense um, on the fly as well. Another guy who you could probably turn to in spurts, but Aside from the dynamic ability of Isaiah Thomas and, and the, the ceiling that he has to be able to do that, I think we've uh, kind of ran into all of it. Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll go first. And, and yeah, the, the last point you made was a good one. Uh, that, uh, you know, Vinnie Johnson, he didn't play well in that, that Knicks series that we, you know, no. the Pistons-Knicks series, but I think the Knicks had better defense, especially especially off the bench at the guard spots. They had uh, Daryl Walker that was... Uh, that was that was really good to, to throw at him, whereas yeah the Jazz don't really have have much at all. So so yeah I could see Isaiah Thomas, I could see Vinny Johnson, and, and even John Long kind of feasting a bit, uh, and and yeah the depth and coaching I also uh, am not a huge uh, fan of for the Jazz. So initially you know when I was when I was thinking about this myself with with the Jazz having home court I had Jazz in seven, but but uh, Corbin you convinced me I'm going the Pistons in six.
you know, matchup wise that at the end of the day, you know, having a, a guard rotation, um, I, I, I lean heavy into Isaiah Thomas. I'm going to go with that one as well. But then again, I lean heavy into Isaiah Thomas. We talked about the, about the Knicks, even with the numbers being what they were. So I think you know where I stand on Isaiah Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> Pistons and seven. Okay. So, uh, yeah, we both, uh, we both came to the conclusion that the Pistons advance. So, uh, Let's uh, let's move on to our our final matchup, which is an interesting one. It's the 2019 Philadelphia 76ers versus the 2009 Houston Rockets. Corbin is going to be defending the Rockets, and the Rockets have home court advantage in the series. I'm going to be defending the uh, last year's Philadelphia 76ers. And for Philly, they finished the season 51 and 31, ninth in offensive rating, 13th in defensive rating, a positive 2.6 net rating. But I will say that this team was 43 and 21 in the 54 games Joel Embiid played, and he is going to be healthy without the flu or anything that was uh, was uh, causing him problems in last uh, in last season's playoffs. So, so I like that, and of course, the, the Sixers lost in seven games to the eventual champion Toronto Raptors in the Eastern Conference semifinals. The 2009 Rockets were 53-29, and 14th in offense and an impressive fourth in defensive rating, a positive 4.4 point differential. And uh, this team also, you know, had uh, had some injury issues. Of course, Tracy McGrady is going to be healthy, but this is also 2009 Tracy McGrady that shot 38.8% from the field. Uh, so, uh, you know, feel free to, to have him out there chucking as many shots as possible. Uh, and, and then uh, also Yao Ming, who, uh, who got hurt in their second-round series against uh, a second-round series loss to the Lakers. They lost that series eventually in seven games. But uh, Yao Ming, I think, got injured in in the closing stages of Game Three, if I'm not mistaken. So he will be healthy for for Corbin's group. But uh, yeah, what are what are some of the interesting things you uh, you thought about when it came to this matchup? So yeah, I mean I, that, that hairline fracture. You're right. That that was um, in his left foot forced him to miss uh, to miss the remainder of the season when the Rockets were down. You said Game Three, so swinging the first two games in LA were, were kind of big for uh, for the Rockets, but. Aside from that, I think their strength, just run through the numbers, uh, they were um, 19th in pace, middle of the pack offensively, 14th, um, and the defensive rating, um, they were 4th, so really solid on the defensive end. Um, I will decline um, your offer to lean extensively on Tracy McGrady, um, <laughs> respectfully, of course, <laughs> um, because you're right, even healthy, <laughs> uh, he, this was like the beginning of the end for him, he was, he had one more year where he thought he was a star, um, then he was obviously moved to the Knicks um, the next season and then just transitioned to role-player status. So uh, 15, 4, and 5, like you said, um, awful uh, just field goal percentage shooting, um, 39 from 2, 38 from 3, not super great. I think the strength of this Rockets team was obviously Yao Ming, but also the deal down more swung um, in his first real blockbuster deal where he acquired Ron Artest, or a medical piece, formerly Ron Artest from the Kings, in exchange for a uh, Dante Green, Bobby Jackson, uh, future first-round draft pick in cash. And obviously with the, let's just say, um, combative nature that World Peace could express back then, it was a gamble for it was as close-knit as Houston was. But this was also a, a deal that, that had a high – it was what would become a um, uh, the beginning of many deals that Dalmoy would make with the 
there with one year left of steel, but the ceiling but was was tantalizing for Houston, and that's what they went for yet again. And in this case, it worked. Um, uh, Yao Ming was just solid, 19 points, 10 rebounds, shot 54% from the field, and a very, very, very solid 86% from the free throw line. The dude was near automatic. He reminds me of uh, Anthony Davis in a big that you're just like, not surprised he shoots so well from the free throw line, but like really also like one of the team's best free throw shooters. Um, so that was solid. Um, he also was his healthiest um, in 77 out of 82 games, and that was really his first full season since uh, his second in 2005, or his fourth in 2005. So that was solid there. Um, and then Artest came, he stepped right in, um, especially making up for some of the lack of McGrady's production, averaging, uh, or not Artest, I keep forgetting, World Peace. Um, in 69 games, World Peace had 17 points and was really solid across the board. Um, again, we talked about his offensive game in <laughs> with um, the 2005 Pacers. By this point as well, 17, 4, and 5 had a really sneaky good passing ability watching some of his games. Shot just under 40% from three on five attempts a game. Um, really kind of a do-it-all guy. Led the Rockets in shot attempts and, and was very, very solid. And it was it was interesting to me because having watched most of my uh, World Peace experience with the Lakers and kind of knowing him as a guy who can kind of get some threes here and there and, and play some defense and take some no, 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 yes kind of shots. <laughs> yeah. It was cool to see and be like, okay, no, this this guy you can play through for stretches and, 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 and was very, very serviceable while also, you know, using that six foot seven frame, a heightened frame um, to devastating effect on the defensive end, which he was also able to do. And, you know, they kind of formed a, 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 a on-the-fly one-two punch, um, World Peace and, and Yao. Especially, you know, while McGrady kind of tanked there. But really, to me, what made this Rockets team so solid was that depth. Um, I mean, you had uh, Luis Scola, who was a, a great post guy. Look up Luis Scola post offense and just see all the stuff he could do back then. He already played nine years in Spain, but this is his second season in the NBA. Um, and he was solid, uh, averaging 12 points and eight rebounds a night. You had Aaron Brooks. Waterbug quick, um, 11 points, 2 rebounds, 3 assists, nothing crazy, but a really uh, decent shooter from outside, a solid 36% from 3, could get to the lane, had a good jump shot, um, Ray for Austin was traded, um, so I mean he's in this one, this one, but he had had a good season up to that point, uh, Carl Landry, another guy who was uh, offensively skilled, big man, Kyle Lowry, yes, that Kyle Lowry, uh, back then just a little, little chubby guy, a little younger dude, 22 at the time, crazy to think, um, and he was a guy who could come in, and, and, and spell um, Aaron Brooks in the offensive and not all three-point shooters. kind of crazy to think about how good he is now and how great he's been from three for the past couple of years. But that season on just one a game, shooting 27%, but seven points and three assists tonight. And uh, you had uh, Brent Berry still at 37 years old, still shooting threes, uh, two a game, 37%. Dikembe Mutombo in his last season um, after being picked up midway through the year because he was considering a retirement after a previous year with Houston. This would indeed be his last year, and he would actually get injured and uh, uh, kind of end his career, sadly, um, in game two of the first-round series against the Trailblazers going down, unfortunately, and ending his career there with an injury. But he was a guy who defensively was um, able to bring uh, some size and, and defensive know-how in, even at 42, for Yao. And overall, it was different people stepping up at different times, and Again, I feel like that's been, been the, the theme of a lot of these teams we've been talking about, where you have one or two guys that the team is anchored around, 
times a night was just an amazing on the defensive side, particularly in stopping or, or, or hampering Kobe Bryant. I know there's, uh, I think it's the book, this, The Gift of Basketball, um, Chris Ballard. I, I, I don't remember the, the name of the book, but in the in the middle of the book, there's um, like pictures showing um, Shane Battier's defense on Kobe. And he limited Kobe to some pretty bad shooting nights. I think he had uh, one where Kobe was, he got 32 points, but he also shot uh, 14% from on the arc. And anyway, you can just look up, uh, Shane Batty defense on Kobe, and there's so many, um, like, just beautiful pictures of Kobe in shooting motion, and Shane Batty in perfect defensive, um, just stance, hands straight up, you know, in between, uh, Kobe's arms and shooting right in between his face, doing his best to hamper him, and this is a consistent attribute that, um, Shane Batty brought, but then you had a difference in Shane Batty's textbook defense, and, um, the more bruising style of world peace and what he was able to bring to the table, and, Honestly, that's what I liked about this. This was really, to me, um, the strength and numbers uh, side of the Houston Rockets from back in the day. And it really gave, uh, sadly, Ming and, and, and McGrady the best supporting cast. It was just a shame that, again, McGrady wasn't able to uh, have his best level of play. And this was really the last year that you would have them all together as uh, World Peace would go join the Lakers the next year. And obviously, McGrady would be gone. But I rambled off for like four or five minutes there on the great balance of the Rockets there. But uh, what do you think about them, Garrett? I can tell you like them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I enjoyed. I enjoyed them immensely. I'm sorry. I watched. Uh, I think two different games of their Portland series and then two more of their uh, Lakers series. No, yeah, I uh, I agree with you. I loved. Uh, I loved that team. They were really fun, and yeah, they they really pushed the Lakers. And and I thought they 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 may have even won that matchup had Yao not gone down. Um, but uh, yeah, that was uh, it. Was a fun team. The uh, the speaking to to the Sixers, you know, to me that Philadelphia team was uh, for one they made that midseason trade to acquire Tobias Harris. You know, even prior to the start of the season, they had just acquired Jimmy Butler. So a lot of the regular season numbers, you know, again not that impressive in terms of ninth in offense and thirteenth in defense. And of course, Joel Embiid missed a decent amount of games as well. But it, it felt more like that regular season was Brett Brown just trying to figure things out, the players kind of learning how to play with each other. And then once the postseason came, if Embiid, when Embiid was on the floor and they had those uh, supercharged, like super tall lineups with, with no traditional point guard because Ben Simmons has that unique skill of being able to bring the ball up the floor but then also defend uh, you know four positions on the, on the defensive side of the ball. They, they were able to uh, just uh, go to another level on the defensive uh, uh, on, on the defensive side of the ball in large part because of Embiid's terrific rim protection combined with their ability to switch all over the court and, and really only having one weak link in, in JJ Redick defensively but of course Redick provided that uh, that half court offense that they they so desperately needed and, and that was that just recently be able to watch them the balance there and you're right having some weaknesses but also being pretty strong with only one weak link defensively which we're going to exploit the mess out of um if i'm houston by the way i just want to just want to say that but in general um you know even someone in jj reddick who yeah he wasn't like uh uh, uh, uh just uh what's the word i'm looking for let's just say he wasn't a walking oh here here's a bucket for you but he was like the best guy to explore on the defensive end that had such length and and devastating defensive versatility in guys like Embiid, like Simmons, like Butler. Um, but at the same time, I, I I think, for 
covering a thing between uh, the Philadelphia 76ers and outside shooting. So I think that um, I would have to go with my Houston Rockets on that one just because, I mean, offensively, you have the inside-outside play of, of Ming who would have a – I think that, that matchup would be most intriguing to me. Um, Ming versus Embiid, um, two bigs. Um, Embiid could definitely start to shot to three a lot more, although, you know, Yao can knock down one from time to time. Um, but having those two go back and forth at each other would be very interesting. I like World Peace and his impact on this squad, um, being someone who could match up with Jimmy Butler on the defensive end, being someone who could kind of cover Spence Simmons on the defensive end. And we also have Shane Battier as well. So you have two people that you can deploy that play fundamental textbook defense and a different change of pace with World Peace being a lot more um, physically imposing than Battier, even though Battier was definitely a, a strong, solid defender as well. And you can mix and match which one you put on Butler more for the on-ball creation that he provides and the shooting ability that he has uh, relative to Simmons and put the other one on Simmons to try and negate him. And I like being able to deploy on both those players there. On the other side, you know, uh, with a post guy of the caliber of a Luis Scola, I think you struggle to have an adequate matchup then. I think this more recent 76ers iteration would be better um, able to stand that, being able to play a... uh, Al Horford or others at times, but in this one, I definitely think uh, um, that Scola would have the advantage there. Uh, Aaron Brooks, I feel, would wreak havoc in the lane, um, being able to use his speed and quickness and, and, and take advantage of kickouts from Yao and mismatches that you know result from the impending double team that I think would incur for uh, Scola. And I, I, looking at the squad, I mean, Von Wafer comes off the bench, great change of pace. Kyle Lounge is an... Kyle, Laundry, Kyle Landry, I don't know why I want to say Kyle Lowry again. Kyle Landry is another player in that Louis Scola mode as far as a big, big man who is offensively just primed and, and ready to go, Um, you know, in the post and, and up up to mid-range. And I, I don't know. I actually think that the balance that the Rockets provide this year is almost a little bit easily too much for the 76ers to kind of handle. Interesting. So I guess one one uh, hole I'll try to poke in your argument here is you're, you're talking about this balance that Houston has offensively, and uh, part of that is the likes of Aaron Brooks and Kyle Lowry. And you know we saw this Sixers team uh, last postseason just absolutely swallow up small guards. You know you watched that Toronto series with Kyle Lowry and Fred VanVleet. Those guys didn't know what to do with the, the overall size and athleticism that that Philadelphia team threw at them. So, um, you know, you, you to saying that uh, Aaron Brooks and Lowry are just going to go off, I, I question that. Uh, I think, uh, you know. I can respect it. Uh, and, then, and then also, you know, you, you mentioned that you'll uh, attack with Skull. I think that is, a, that is a decent argument. I'll have to think about how I'm going to try and combat that. Um, but but also when when you said you'll attack JJ Redick, uh, the the other thing that I think that that I can do, especially with Shane Battier starting for that team, is is I can hide JJ on uh, on Shane. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, Shane offensively again was really just three a three point guy. I think he had a few. I saw a few shots he was able to kind of take advantage of selectively, you know in the post, but that really was in this game, so I think you're right there. I don't think it's for lack of, of offensive versatility. Um, Shane Batty could, you know, get a couple points here and there. He wasn't exactly a liability in that end, but he, he definitely wasn't looking for a shot, so I think that that would be um, 
that would be a good way to go. But if I'm the Rockets, I think I'm hunting mismatches on that end um, to exploit Redick. And you know what? On the offensive end, I think there's enough weapons that if you know Redick's gonna help out on one, even if you put Embiid and think that he can handle Yao straight up, there's another big man matchup with another post up that I think is gonna call a double team. Um, that I just believe would have Redick be the guy and play inside outside. And, and I, I think that, that would work with some steady three-point shooting that the Rockets have that I, I, I just don't think uh, Philadelphia could replicate. Yeah, the um, skull is a problem. I'll concede that. Yeah. The, uh, okay. the, um, the thing that I like about, obviously, you know, I, I think the best player on the floor, and maybe you disagree with this, but I think the best player on the floor in this series is Joel Embiid. So here, here's my here's my uh, thing, my thoughts on that particular matchup, and and yes, obviously Yao had uh, had a very skilled post game, really good outside shooter as well. Didn't didn't stretch it out to three, but uh, could hit even long mid range jumpers pretty well. And, and you already brought up the the elite free throw shooting, uh, but but Embiid is elite at drawing fouls. And uh, Embiid not only backing down, but also he can go to the face-up game and utilize his quickness and mobility. And uh, I think, you know, speaking to, uh, I was looking up Embiid's numbers on cleaning the glass last year, but uh, Joel was in the 99th percentile in drawing on-the-floor fouls and in the 91st percentile in drawing shooting fouls. And frankly, if he can get Yao Ming in foul trouble... I, uh, I'm a little worried, uh, you know, you brought up Dikembe Mutombo, and of course he can be healthy, but he's incredibly old at this point. Uh, I, I'm a little worried at the the backup center position if uh, if Embiid can can cause some, some foul trouble for Yao Ming and, and get him off the floor. I tend to agree with you. I actually think it could work the opposite way as well, though. I think Yao Ming was, was great, and he did a good job, at least in the series I saw, of getting Andrew Bynum and... and, and um, um, Joe Prisbilla and, and, and other um, Portland bigs, Lamarcus Aldridge, you know, battling trouble just because of his sheer size and his skill in the post, um, different feints and faces he's able to utilize to his advantage. I think that at best, maybe they cancel out each other because, again, looking at the same argument going the other way, you know, they made moves with Al Horford to, to come up for Joel Embiid, specifically to cover over weaknesses the year before, the one we're referencing, um, in the big man rotation for the 76 or so. I mean, I look at that at best as a wash. Just because both guys get each other in trouble, um, and then the people come off the bench for different reasons entirely. One just being the way you know older and ineffective, and one just being ineffective. I think render the situation moot as far as the big man perspective. And then even so, if that's the case, I mean that helps me out because I'm not so worried about the backup bigs for the 76ers. Um, because not only does that help the offensive end for us in guys like Carl Andrew and Scola who aren't exactly, let's just say, uh, stout defenders, but are very good on the offensive end um, for undersized bigs or, or just bigs in general. So I look at that as as not as big as an advantage as you might just because I think that works both ways. And I also think that that's a papered-over weakness for the 76 as well. Yeah, um, yeah the, the, there's no doubt that uh, the... The backup center situation for Philadelphia was not as good. Although I will say, I think 
Embiid showed, uh, you know, when when both guys were healthy, I think Embiid could actually play 45 minutes, and he did in that Game 7 against Toronto, whereas I don't know if Yao Ming is capable of playing 45 minutes uh, if, if you need him to. Uh, but, but yeah, the, the thing, um, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I guess when when you talk about a postseason series, though, you know, I'm going to take, oftentimes I'm going to say, okay, what teams have the better players? And frankly, you know, when you talk about the, the one-on-one matchups, uh, as much as I like Yao Ming, I still think that uh, Embiid, the, the 2019 version of Embiid is a slightly better player than the 2009 version of Yao Ming. And I also like the, the 2019 version of Jimmy Butler a little bit more than the 2009 Ron Artest. Again, I think these are close. Um, but, uh, but I, but I mean, I, I think Jimmy Butler, I've been, I think I've been higher on Jimmy Butler than most people. I think he's for, for the last five or so years, he's been right around a, a top 10 player in the league. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I do think that the Sixers have a slight talent edge. And again, if, if, if that switching, that size and athleticism that the Sixers defense you showed, and, and really swallowed up a lot of those Raptors small guards. If we can take away the likes of Brooks and Lowry, all of a sudden, um, you know, the, the, where the offense is coming up from for Houston is, uh, is a little bit questionable. I, I mean, yeah, I, I think hypothetically that would be the case. I don't see that as, I don't, as good as Jimmy Butler is, I don't see, I see World Peace giving him some problems. And I think that, you're right. If we have to put, um, if we have to play, if, if it comes down to having to play out 45 minutes a game or 40 minutes a game, then we've lost already, um, in my opinion. But I think that it won't. Um, I think that having the depth, you're right. If it ever comes to where it's focused enough to take certain players out entirely, then yeah, some cracks start to show. Especially since it is built mainly around Yao, and it wasn't even meant to be in, in this case as far as the rocket strategy, but kind of morphed into Yao World Peace. Brooks, you know, down the line. But I think either way, looking at each of these matchups, I mean, at best, I'm seeing maybe I'll give Ben Simmons an edge if he's playing Skola straight up. Um, and, and as great defensively as he is, I uh, I like Skola in certain moves. Skola was had a, had a tool set in the post that was that was very very polished. Um, and again, this is a guy who's been a pro for a number of years at this point, so he was definitely no uh, rook in that area. Um, I get what you're saying about taking Embiid over uh, uh, Yao, but I would make that very, very close at best. Um, and I also think that he's definitely going to get his. Um, maybe, again, there's just watching so much of that 0-9 Rockets, but uh, World Peace had a, a polished skill set. is one of his better three-point shooting years, and he was reliably just generating offense at the time. Um, not only for himself, but for others. And Aaron Brooks did a very good job um, uh, just getting the team their offense and selectively scoring. And I think with his speed, his shooting ability, and the fact that, you know, the 76 are skewed more big than small, I think there is an advantage gained for the Rockets in the backcourt. So I, I I, understand the argument. I can definitely see some where it's a lot closer than others, but I, 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 I think the Rockets have a, have a very good edge on this one. Interesting. So, yeah, the um, and, I, and I think um, based on us, us talking in the past, I think I'm just a lot higher on the, the 2019 Sixers than, than you are. Um, and uh, again, especially given that, you know, I think a lot of their, their, their point differential, their, their offensive and defensive rating and their record was, was in large part just due to the fact that Embiid didn't play, 
uh, you know, the full slate of games. Again, this team was was basically on the pace to win about 56 games in games that Embiid actually was out there on the floor. Um, so, so I look at them as more of, especially in a, in a playoff series where Embiid is healthy, I look at them more as a, a mid-50s win team um, than, than the 51-win the team that they, they actually ended up being and, and the 48 wins that they were expected to win based on their point differential. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating matchup. You know, again, I think both teams kind of have some, some decent answers and both teams are, are kind of strong in the same spots. Uh, but, you know, for, for Philadelphia, I think Simmons provides a lot of different sort of strengths than a guy like Scola does. You know, they, they both provide some, some good basketball, but in very different ways. Scola, as you said, with the, with the post game uh, and his passing and a, and a bit of a mid-range jumper as well. Whereas Ben Simmons with the transition game, his perimeter defense, uh, his ball handling. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Um, you know, I, I also, again, I think that J.J. Redick, is another guy that I love in a playoff series. I think he, um, again, there's enough uh, guys on that on that Houston roster, not only with Shane Battier and the starting lineup, but uh, you know you can put him on some guys that Houston brings off the bench as well, and and hide him reasonably well. And the production he gives you offensively with his floor spacing, the dribble handoff game with him and Embiid was so difficult for uh, postseason defenses, including a, a great postseason defense in the Raptors to to stop I, I mean that's a good point I, just, I don't know I, I, I think it's decent I, I think that the Raptors is, is a good uh, or a decent um, archetype or semblance to this Rockets squad uh, but I think offensively the strength to Yao is a lot more than I think we're, we're letting on in terms of um, the skill there yeah the skill set that Ben Simmons provides is it is a good one, to be honest, but I think that it is somewhat negated by me being able to put both Shane Battier and or Metaworld Peace on him at certain points of time. Defenders that aside from, you know, uh, Kawhi or Pascal Siakam he didn't, or OJ and nobody wasn't even in that series. He didn't really get a chance to experience too much with uh, the round Raptors. And I think especially with his ball handling ability being as great as it is, but his limited shooting ability or, or creation like that, especially with fundamentally great defenders as Battier and, and uh, World Peace, I think that they do take him out of his element just enough for um, it not to be as significant of a problem as I think you might uh, consider it to be. Yeah, and the other concern I have about uh, Yao Ming, not only the, the foul trouble potential guarding MB, but then also getting up and down the floor in a potential high, uh, you know, a high-paced series, uh, and, and also, you know, again, those those actions with, with Redick and Embiid running dribble handoffs, uh, you know, I, I don't trust the fact that Yao Bing is going to be able to step up and, and show to Redick to contest that shot. And if he does, I, I'm confident that uh, he can get beat uh, off the dribble. So uh, there, there's enough there offensively that I think we can exploit Yao. Um, and, and yeah, he's going to be, he's going to be tough to handle on the other end and he can even bring Embiid a little bit out from the basket, but the Sixers overall just have so much size defensively that, uh, I think they can, they can still be a, a tough defensive group to stop. And, and frankly, you know, there, there's also the situation of, you know, if Scola is, is giving us problems on the block, the Sixers defense has so much athleticism and speed that, I think we can double and still be okay getting out and, 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 and running around. I highly disagree when it comes to Aaron Brooks. Um, just because the, 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 the size is, is a great factor, but speedy point guards in general, 
I, I, I don't know about that. Um, especially with, with, with a guy like Brooks who could also shoot from deep pretty effectively. Um, I mean, I would definitely put that as a, as a better version of a Van Vliet in that matchup in terms of being someone who could um, space the floor reliably and also use that quickness and penetration to, I would contend, even get ro- late rotating help like Embiid or others into foul trouble. So, I mean, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from, though. Um, but no, I, I think this might be our first disagreement because I, I hear the arguments here and I, I understand to a certain extent, but I, I don't see enough that compoundingly turns me away. From, and maybe that's because I'm higher on the, the wing depth of World Peace and Batty, but I think you have enough there, along with a stout defender, at least a stout rim protector in Yao, that you can recover pretty effectively. You don't have a lot of shooting to really worry about, especially from, I mean, Jimmy Butler's your best three-point shooter in that line, uh, aside from Redick, of course, and that's as iffy as it gets from there. I mean, a beat will definitely take them, but we all know players in this day and age just pump fake, just fall for the pump fake because, you know, not because he actually converts, just because he'll take it. And Simmons complete out the outside lack of outside ability. So I'm not super worried about the defenders that we have to utilize that are really just better for like Kobe's and Brandon Roy's and more dynamic players at that time where, yeah, you know, you have to worry about guys like a Butler, um, like a Simmons, but that's like one element of the game that's almost completely carved out. Um, that's not that much of a worry. I think defensively, we have enough that will hold solid. And offensively, I think there's enough to take advantage of on the 76 side that, yes, their defense is is, is, is very good. And, yeah, they, they limit a lot. But you have guys who can play through. You have guys who can take advantage of, of situational advantages or or, 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 um, or, or, or mishaps or um, matchup-based issues. And I think that that would be enough. I think it'd be tough for sure. You give me a lot to think about because I had this uh, easily like a five uh, five game series in my mind, five six game series. But um, yeah, I I, I still feel pretty strong about this one, man. <laughs> well, yeah, Aaron Brooks would you know better be better than Fred Van Fleet was because Fred Van Fleet shot twelve point five percent from the field in that series against the Sixers. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. he didn't come alive until the Bucks. He was horrific. But even then, you know, what I mean, a lot of that was the greatness of Kawhi and then Pascal. But uh, a lot of that in general was you're right. He had to be better. But I think that with Aaron Brooks, you get that in some. And I don't think that the 76ers have a reliable way to stop that, especially with the speed that he has. I don't think being able to. It's not like they, they, they. The size was the great thing about them. The size and the length, but the speed isn't something I think back. Rudley on the 76ers team. Aside from Butler and Simmons, I think Embiid is a weak link, and when you are putting them in rotations where you have to close out quickly, I could see Embiid getting into foul trouble very quickly. Yeah, the 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 thing, I guess, the yeah, Aaron Brooks is going to be a key factor in this series because he is one of the few guys on the Houston roster that, uh, you know, if you go under the screen or, or something, he can, he can hit the three. If you switch it, he has the speed to get past guys but, you know, I think you saw a lot, again, with, I think, the advantage of having a whole roster of, like, six, seven guys or taller is that even if you get past one player, if you blow by a guy even, there's so much more length and size to deal with. And, and uh, so, yeah, it, it would definitely, I think, a lot come down to Aaron Brooks and his ability to be a scorer for this team because, yeah, the, the likes of... Uh, of Yao Ming, I can throw Embiid on him, the likes of Meta World Peace, I can throw Jimmy Butler on him, I've still got Ben Simmons to throw at the likes of Scola, 
uh, that, you know, I've got a lot of defensive answers. But, yeah, Aaron Brooks is kind of the wild card here. Yeah, and I think, I, I don't know, even coming off the bench, Kyle Lowry was, wasn't at all the Kyle Lowry that he is now, but he was still crafty. You know, wasn't a great shooter, but getting to the rim and getting them into offense was another guy who I think would be more of an Aaron Brooks light, which is hilarious to think now, given how their careers have played out. But back then, um, most definitely. And and I don't know. I think I, I give the advantage to World Peace over Butler. But I think you're more on Butler and I'm more on World Peace. So I think that that is kind of where the advantages lie in terms of Butler being very solid. But in his prime, being just a lot more physically imposing um, and, and using that physicality more. Butler would definitely give him somewhat of a matchup issue. But I think that on the offensive end, he has his hands full. And the defensive end, I think World Peace does what he did to a lot of uh, wings back then and, and, and just takes over um, completely out of their game. Um, and then again, I, I, I like Ben Simmons on Shane Battier or, or hiding um, uh, Ben Simmons on Luis Scola. And then we have Carl Lange come off the bench doing the exact same thing. Um, and then at the same time, you know, you, you think that maybe you could hide uh, J.J. Reddick some, but, but I would disagree. <laughs> Well, yeah, it, it, it a lot comes down to again the um, if you can if you can force a switch uh, or not uh, sort of sort of situation. I think we're we're going to uh, we're not going to be able to convince each other, but yeah, I think we both put out some some interesting arguments as to why we we like uh, each individual team. Um, so yeah, let, Corbin, let me hear your thoughts on uh, who you think will win this series and in how many games. So I think it'll be a tough one. I think it would be tight. Um, defensively, you gave some points for Philadelphia and their size. I think offensively, the balance, but also key matchups that I think would lean more in the Rockets' favor. I'm, I'm going with Rockets in six. I'm, I'm looking at this as, a, as, you know, Philadelphia, I think that they'll probably steal one. Well, I mean, they have the better. I mean, I, th- I think if, if they'll steal one on the, other, on the opponent's court at one point, I don't think they'll win both their games. I think it'll be two splits, and then the Rockets will just kind of take over. Okay, so yeah, this is the one where we're we're like we're multiple games off. I have not the nineteen sixers in six, uh, so uh, I have them uh, stealing one in Houston and uh, holding out at home. Of course, they were a terrific home team as well. You know, it was uh, even in that series they lost to Toronto. Games three and six at home were blowout wins, and that game four was a tight game where Kawhi just went nuts uh, and and hit the game winning uh, three in the closing stages. So. That Sixers home home court advantage, we've seen that uh, even even uh, spray over into the the 2019-20 season with there being like 29 and two at home or something like that. But uh, the Sixers home court advantage was real. So uh, yeah, I have them I have them winning in six. So that's uh, so again, just like in the uh, the play in part one, we're gonna have one series where we're gonna have the people uh, have to uh, have to decide and, and vote this out. We'll probably post. Um, We'll probably put a poll up here in the next uh, week or so to let people make that decision, and uh, we can see if uh, which one of us was was more convincing in this discussion. <laughs> I like it, man. I think I think this would be interesting to look back on for sure. Um, I like that we each had one that we just kind of drew the line, like, oh yeah, like there was always one team I knew I'd be rationally high on, but I think this one be an interesting one for uh, the listeners to decide. I look forward to seeing the results of that. Yeah. So Corbin, we've been going at this for. Over two and a half hours at this point, so uh, uh, I, this was this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for for doing it and uh, and taking the time. Uh, always, Garrett. Thank you, man. <laughs>
Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars. And uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on Twitter, at Garrett Bougay. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be uh, tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some, some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine, including soccer and film and television. So uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the, the course of the week, you can find me there. You can find my co-host Corbin Ford on Twitter at CorbinNBA. That's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A. So uh, he, uh, he does, a, d- does a good job on Twitter as well. He's very active. Uh, Corbin also is the site expert for the fan-sided website Valley of the Sun, which talks all things Phoenix Suns, so you can check out uh, what he's doing there. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers, so if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, so, so please... I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for, for listening, and have a great rest of your day. Leftovers. Or the DMV. Number 97. Or house cleaning. Or... Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home Internet. Cox is the real home Internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of Ookla speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash internet for details.